0: Mackey and this is David Hainik. And in case you are new today, uh, we're part of the PMHP implementation team. Um, we'll be facilitating the training today. A little bit of follow-up from last week. Um, let's see, we did two days for those that weren't here. The first day was on history, policy, uh, uh, models of addiction, defining harm reduction. Um, the second day was on sort of autonomy supportive clinical approaches, um, the harm reduction psychotherapy framework, and things like stages of change, motivational interviewing, goal setting, treatment planning, managing expectations. And today we are going to talk about uh, more of the practical stuff. So, safer use strategies, overdose prevention. MAT a little bit, um, some considerations for COVID-19, and then we're going to go through a a tool or a framework rather that can be used to um, examine a clinical scenario and determine what some harm reduction targets might be. Um, So we'll do that. And then the last part of the day, David will take over and talk about special topics, so non-substance use related harm reduction topics. A um, follow-up from last week, I said I'd make a small reference list that included some of these books we've been unhelpfully flashing in front of the screen. And I did do that. And it is uploaded to the same location where the materials have been for this training thus far. So that's there if you wanted. Just a, a quick list of the five or six books um, that we have drawn on greatly for the material for this training and that would be wonderful reference books. Um, to have on hand. If you received uh, books from us, as some programs did, or some locations of some programs did in the past uh, two years, many of them would be actually part of those collections. So you may already have them. Okay, so much like we started off day two, let's sort of frame what we're doing today. Um, Again, much of what we talked about last week was around Sort of the theoretical, um, talking about harm reduction's perspective as a set of practical strategies, but also as a movement, um, the ethos of it, and then we talked about how that overlaps with and is embedded within some of the clinical approaches or concepts like stages of change and motivational interviewing. We're not going to do too much around uh, theory today. Uh, It's kind of, you know... I'd say today is really about like the nuts and bolts, um, how to understand, how to have like just practical knowledge to support uh, clients of yours who may use drugs. And this drug set setting framework, again, is not a terribly complex thing. It's a little bit old, it's from 1984. Norman Zinberg um, is the, I believe he's a psychologist. The person who created it, uh, we showed you on day two this multidisciplinary assessment profile that looks a lot like this. It was also a triangle and it had headers that said drug set and setting. And that's adapted from uh, Norman Zimberg's model that you see here. So in that um, that 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 tool, the map, the multidisciplinary assessment profile is really meant as an assessment tool um, that could encompass just working with anyone who's using substances um, that you're working with. This is really about narrowing it down to um, specifically trying to develop harm reduction intervention targets. So we're going to come back to this later when we talk through some vignettes. Um, But for right now, I just want to throw it up as a way to start framing how you take in information for the next hour and a half while I'm talking about practical stuff with uh, substance use. So this drug set setting framework divides uh, the things that could be considered around drug use and how it's gonna impact someone who's using drugs into drug, which includes what the drug is um, and and details around it. So what the dose is, where the drug came from, like the source, Uh, the potency, things like that. Set has to do with sort of like the psychological and physiological aspects of where a person is at when they are using the drug, their mindset, their motivation for the use, their relationship to their use, um, any beliefs they have around it. Um, And then uh, that could include also like uh, psychiatric diagnoses. So we would take those into consideration. Setting has to do with the setting in which a person is Existing over time and also specifically using drugs within a a discrete instance. So that's environment, the support someone has in their life, their culture, social dynamics, all of those things. So again, what we will use this for later is to talk through some scenarios and think on how can we target based off the information we have, organizing it into this framework with consideration of benefits and harms in equal measure from the information that we have, where can we intervene that does not involve asking the person to stop, reduce, or go to treatment? So all of the information we'll be using today, all the learning will be applied to situations where It's not an option to stop tell the client to stop unless they're interested in doing so. But none of our folks will be in our vignettes um, to reduce or to go to treatment. Um, So I ask you for those that would think that that's still um, you know a helpful step. Some people at the end of day two were commenting that they would still have referred that person in the scenario to treatment as just you know due diligence um, and. While I commend the the wanting to be comprehensive, Um, we really want to work with where people are at and if they have interest and motivation for um, cessation versus uh, and also also what their actual stage of change is. So we're working with people today who don't want to quit, and that will be the theme of the day. What to do um, if someone does not want to stop using drugs? These are the things you can do that are really practical. Okay, so I'll stop on that because we will revisit it later, and let's dive right in. Um, So ways of using drugs. There are a number of ways that we can ingest substances. Um, I think, you know, for this, we're not talking about alcohol, although actually alcohol can be ingested through two of these methods. The bottom two is swallowing and shelving, as a matter of fact. Um, which is helpful for people who may have GI issues, maybe, although the risks of um, shelving, which is inserting up the rectum of alcohol or any other drug, can, uh, the the tissue is so permeable that people can easily become over-intoxicated or overdose even on alcohol. Um, But we're just going to be talking about drugs for the most part, unless we're explicitly talking about alcohol. And you'll find that, I'm going to hop around kind of between different drugs. And that is part of just trying to follow some logical progression, but also to perhaps reflect that polysubstance use and the sort of overlapping effects of drugs and medications that can be used to support people who are on them is is complex and it's not necessarily linear and impossible to perfectly organize. Uh, So ways of using drugs, Talking about drugs, maybe let's use, for example, um, let's stick to for today, for right now, methamphetamine or heroin. Um, So snorting is an option. Uh, That's one of the sort of potentially lower risk options on the whole. Um, Snorting involves crushing a, a drug that is either formerly in liquid form that was turned into a crystal form, or crushing up something that's already in a crystal or, or hardened form into a powder that's snortable. Um, it's a bit of a slower high, it impacts, um, it, it, the intoxication effects come on more slowly, about five to 20 minutes, um, it's slower than injecting, for example. Um, the risks are damage to the inside of the nose the nasal membranes, and there's a pathogen risk if sharing the snorting implement uh, is a thing. So when you're working with folks, uh, you really want to advise them not to share dollar bills or straws if they can be supplied with their own snorting implements or ones that they can sanitize and keep clean, that's ideal. Other things that can occur, a lot of um, drugs that would be snorted are going to have uh, Additives, things that aren't helpful, for, they're not helpful for getting high and they're also not helpful for nasal membranes. So using something like a saline spray um, that's not homemade, that's that's made um, by a, in a store or is made from saline packets and distilled water, um, like the little neti kits that uh, are sold, that's a good example of something that could be used to keep the nasal membranes in a better place. But the issue just can be if people get sinus infections um, or and get some inflammation and then potentially uh, have um, broken skin, that could just get really irritated and inflamed, and potentially you could uh, end up with infection. Okay, injecting. Injecting is Injecting is a challenging thing. And I have no idea if anyone in here has had experience with using uh, drugs in an intravenous format. Um, But for, depending on the drug, it can be a a multi-step process. Um, So injecting is an immediate high. Uh, Of course, we know that there's a large risk of um, infection of a number of pathogens. We worry about HIV and hepatitis C um, in large part. But anything else that's in that could have contaminated any of the, the materials used to prepare or the syringe that's being used to inject um, could also, like perhaps uh, things that are bacterial or fungal, those are also risk factors. So, the most important piece with injecting um, for pathogen risk is not sharing needles, using clean ones, and if you're, if you're doing something like preparing uh, heroin, for example, which is a multi-step process, making sure all the materials that are being used to cook, so the cooker, um, the cotton is clean, uh, making sure you're using, if you need to use vitamin C to break down the type of heroin that's being used, use vitamin C powder and not a substitute like lemon juice that so won't be effective and um, could be damaging as well. Um, another area that we talk about for injecting is vein care. and. Um, with that, I think there's, there's a lot of benefit in just having folks, if they are injecting, involved in primary care. But past that, just if, if there's access to any sort of nursing services, wherever, checking in on veins. People can inject all over their body and without like a proper examination. Mm-hmm. They may not know what's going on. They may not know that um, an abscess has occurred. It might be somewhere that they're not easily able to reach and assess. Um, so that's another harm reduction, safer use strategy that you can use around injecting. Smoking. You can smoke a number of drugs. Uh, it's an immediate high also along with injecting, but it's shorter lived and uh, a lot of drug gets lost in the smoke. So people are sometimes more apt to do this because it's just a little bit easier. Injecting takes a lot of preparation, um, but it's 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 more wasteful. And it uh, depending on the environment you're in, It can create a a smell that might be problematic uh, and might alert others that you're using a drug that is illegal, for example. Um, Of course, there's damage to lungs. Uh, There is pathogen risk if you are sharing pipes and mouthpieces, um, particularly those that might be broken and could have cut someone's lip. Um, Also, with smoking a number of drugs or smoking cigarettes, uh, you can get dehydrated lips that crack. Um, And that can cause blood to get onto the smoking implements and uh, increase pathogen risk. So with that, um, using chapstick, (laughs) providing chapstick to your clients that smoke, providing them with like rubber tips that can be used on uh, pipes or um, just uh, alcohol pads and things to sanitize um, the pipes would be helpful as well. I worked at an agency in New York that actually gave out safer smoking kits. Um, Crack cocaine smoking was really popular in the Bronx where I worked for a while. And it was a really effective tool to also put in a few other things like condoms, um, hand sanitizer, some resources that they could uh, engage with. it really it was primarily, I would say, an engagement tool, perhaps more than a harm reduction intervention. To say like, hey, we kn- we know you're doing this. We we aren't coming from a place of judgment. We just want to support you tangibly and doing this more safely. Okay, swallowing drugs. So most people won't swallow drugs unless it's uh, maybe. Let's say. I think I think one of the some. Uh, hallucinogens are probably best um, taken in a, a swallowing format. You're not going to want to, um, most people wouldn't want to snort uh, mushrooms, for example. That would probably be a strange thing to do and not a great experience. Um, but most, in most cases for drugs that uh, we're talking about today that come with risk of overdose or um, can just be harmful overall because of the con- concerns around what they're cut with, we, we won't see people eating the drugs. However, um, an option for someone who is maybe trying to cease opiate use, trying to stop using heroin, eating heroin, <laughs> eating, actually just eating it, swallowing it, it will, all of the um, impact of its intoxication will pretty much go away. It w- it'll, go, it'll be processed in the liver first but it can uh, offset or it can delay withdrawal. So that's an option um, that can be used for someone who's actually trying to reduce or stop using an opiate, but isn't engaged in medication assisted treatment and can't tolerate withdrawals, but is still not wanting to use in a higher risk way or one where they get high um let's see here what else to say about that there's potential damage to the gut especially with stimulants um they're sure there's damage to internal organs over time um if people are doing this they should eat first and uh just like any substance you want to be patient the longer it takes for the body to absorb it and metabolize it you want to wait that much longer before dosing again if you are trying to achieve a high Uh, The fifth route of administration is called shelving or booty bumping, a little taboo to speak about, but it's definitely a valid route that many people may use for a number of drugs, alcohol included, again, for people who, let's say they have a GI issue, this is something people do and you should be aware of it. Um, and it, it can be pretty risky with alcohol again, due to like the immediate intoxication uh, risk. So for other substances, though, you can dissolve a number of them using citric acid, uh, or and put them in a plastic syringe and inject that solution into the anus, and. The onset can take a bit longer uh, with some substances, but you end up needing less, and the high can last longer. So another thing that would be helpful to use here if if someone's doing this regularly is to supply them with lubricant so they're not damaging the tissue in that area. All right, and then of course there's potential for cross-contamination with fecal particles. Uh, Hopefully that would be obvious, but still we want to make sure however people are using their substances, especially if they are smoking, injecting, or shelving, that everything is clean. Um, Whatever surfaces they're using, uh, whatever implements they're using, their hands. And it's really, you know, in practice, this can be much more challenging if you're working with people who are unhoused and don't have great spaces to use substances. So if they're going to do it, doing some problem solving and brainstorming around spaces in which they can have the cleanest tie possible is a good practice. All right, I'm going to look at the question we have discussed harm reduction approaches on a micro level will we also discuss approaches to address macro level no we won't in this training um that's that's a, a bigger topic we will talk a bit about fentanyl but on the micro level needle exchange can also help yep and people that refer regardless of client's choice um are if client dies and light is shined on the last practitioner, perhaps client's family decides to sue, claiming that nothing was done to prevent OD, at least it's documented that there was a standard referral. I still think there's a way to document why it was why or why not it was clinically appropriate to refer the person to treatment um, and not be held liable. Link to the slide. Tasha's got it. Okay, move it on. So tips for safer use, syringe safety, utilize a syringe exchange. And I'll share a little bit of information on how to find those. Um, If uh, clean, right, we talked about this, if clean or safe syringes or healthy veins also are no longer available, we've got some other options here. And if someone can't access a syringe exchange, um, there is a protocol for cleaning syringes. It involves. Uh, cleansing and water, and then pure bleach, and then water again. Um, this link right here takes you to a nice little infographic that's very straightforward steps. It could actually be printed out, folded up, and given to people um, on how to do this uh, process properly. And if you have folks that are using syringes, again, whether it's for intravenous drug use or for insulin or whatever, they need to have a safe place to put the sharps. Um, I'm sure you all have heard of harrowing tales of people getting stuck. I certainly have had colleagues that this has happened to just by helping someone clean out their apartment and not knowing a needle was in a trash bag. Uh, so if someone can't get a sharps container, uh, using a soda or laundry detergent bottle just labeled with Sharpie is a good option. Um, and again, safer injection uh, practices involve looking for abscesses, making, checking to make sure and I know majority of the folks here are likely not nurses or maybe some are doctors, I'm not sure. Um, but you know, it's just still talking to clients about like, hey, have you checked recently? Where are you injecting on your body? And, you know, have you had symptoms like fever? Those are important things that you can still bring up in conversation. And again, when you're talking with someone in this way about like, we recognize reality and I just wanna help you use more safely and lower your risk, that's gonna open up a lot of um, inroads for trust and rapport building. So one resource that you can use for finding uh, syringe exchanges, and I will say that, and I don't know why I've screenshot one from San Francisco, sorry, uh, the number in LA County could be larger, and it hopefully it will be soon. I know the Harm Reduction Coalition, that's um, a national group, is working to get uh, coordination and sort of um, a more robust infrastructure set up for syringe exchange in L.A. County. Um, right now, you'll, I'll share a little bit of information about where some of the big ones are. So this this is information for L.A. Community Health Project and Homeless Healthcare L.A. They'll have a couple different locations each. Um, some have mobile. Um, locations also. And there's some other groups within LA County that provide syringe exchange. These are sort of the bigger ones that will provide other harm reduction services as well. Uh, Also good places to access testing, uh, educational and training materials, um, and then overdose prevention materials like uh, Narcan. So my understanding is that these have remained open throughout the pandemic and will continue to. Um, I think it's uh, it's um, been a big priority for them to uh, c- continue to provide these services, and uh, and I, I assume uh, even under the current circumstances, as things have become more locked down, they still will, but their their websites are there if you want to check for updates. Okay, let's see here. Is it true that there are sites in Northern California that allow people to, to IV use in a safe environment? Well, I actually don't know if any have opened in California. They will watch a video sort of like just just engaging around the topic of safer injection sites or also called supervised injection sites. And these are locations where there is supervision for uh, intravenous drug use. my understanding is there's not one open yet in America. David, tell me if I'm getting that wrong, if you know better. They're open in Canada, they're open in Europe, um, and there are a number of states tr- and cities that are trying to get them open. But we'll, we'll look at a uh, video on that in a little bit. And I know this may sound like a stupid question, but where's the line between safety and enabling? Were you here for day two? <laughs> it's a, it's a, that's not an easy question to answer. Um, I. I personally don't really believe that enabling is, I think what we often call enabling isn't. Um, just much like we talked about how um, work acceptance, accepting what someone is doing, isn't um, necessarily approving of it and providing people with the resources to do things more safely while also talking about the risks of what they're um, doing in a way that's grounded in. Um, approaches like motivational interviewing, where we're, we're not advising without permission. That's sort of the magic, you know. Enabling isn't really a thing that exists in my mind. There's me disagree. So, methamphetamine use. I know this is a hot topic for you all. I know it's probably at times the... Um, just perhaps the most bane of your existence, it may be even, the fact that methamphetamine exists and that people use it and it complicates their lives so much um, and that it feels like there's really nothing you can do for it. There is MAT for alcohol use disorder and opiate use disorder, but there isn't as much available for methamphetamine. In my mind, it's I'm not quite sure why if people wanted an MAT for that, it wouldn't actually just be using amphetamines, um, like drugs that are used for ADHD treatment. Um, I think there's maybe maybe some fledgling research for our consideration of using that as an intervention, but it's just not the, it's not the same. Um, so we have to think on in today's training, what we can do, what we can do to support people who are using methamphetamine. Um, swallowing is the safest way of using. You will probably not get a lot of people who are willing to do this, um, as, again, because they will not get as high, um, and it will waste some of the drug in the liver. Uh, starting injecting and smoking can all, of course, cause physical harm to nasal passages, mucous membranes, injection sites, lungs, and lips. And tolerance occurs more rapidly when injecting or smoking. Uh, what people can do if they're using methamphetamine is to sort of try, just try to schedule their use and try to schedule food, rest, and hydration. Um, If someone is going to miss a lot of sleep, they need to have everything else in place ideally to support um, that come down that's going to inevitably occur. Uh, So scheduling use, taking breaks between using, not just doing it day after day after day, not getting to a place of delirium from lack of sleep um, or worse, uh, is pretty critical. So you want to work with people around like how can you, if you're going to use wait a few days, wait, wait ideally longer um, in between instances where you're going to be high for um, more than just one dose. Uh, dehydration, again, is common. Um, when mixed with alcohol, it can be even more so. So making a plan for hydration. Uh, people are smoking, again, covering that mouthpiece and making sure it's not broken. Making um, sure they're not getting burned. It can get quite hot, the lips. Um, And going slow and doing test doses, this applies for all substances, uh, really, uh, and particularly opiates. Now, what we've known is that fentanyl, and we'll talk a little bit more about fentanyl in a few minutes, um, is getting put into things it doesn't make sense for it to be in, uh, like cocaine and methamphetamine, Um, so even more of an impetus to do test doses and make sure that the batch that you have, you know the strength of it and that you're not overdoing it or getting something that is uh, contaminated with fentanyl um, and this is really critical if there's a new supplier that you're using um, or if you've taken a long break because so just whoever the dealer is that you are using they get their distributor could be could have changed and this has happened a lot during the pandemic um, supply lines the drug trade got just impacted in a number of ways for all substances that were coming in, especially from international sources, which is most of the big ones, um, cocaine, methamphetamine, and heroin. And people's sources kind of shifted and changed. People had to go longer and may, again, have to go longer without access to the substance that they use. And with that, tolerance can change. So the dose that someone needed when they had a consistent supply may have changed, and they need to start with a smaller dose because of that. Um, and again, understanding crash patterns and planning ahead to try and avoid severe aversions of them. Okay. Um, oh, yeah. Food, rest, and hydration. A lot, a lot can be done for mental health with those, right, and physical health because, you know, of course, all of this fits together. It's all integrated. It's all one big picture. Um, Not one link, making sure that there's only one link for all slides, yes, that's accurate. It's all one big thing. You were here uh, in Sutton for day two, more clarification. Yeah, I think, you know, when we wrap up today, if people wanna uh, think through this more or introduce it into maybe some of the scenario discussion, if that's helpful, it is, everyone has to sort of make their own piece with helping people use drugs safely Right? Like that is, it can feel, um, it can feel, uh, I understand the sentiment of it can feel like you're you're being a little too helpful, but the reality is you're just reducing risk. All of these strategies are truly about reducing risk. Alcohol use, so alcohol, perhaps <laughs> one of the most harmful and scary substances out there that's completely legal um, and ubiquitous. Uh, why? Um, why is alcohol a scary one? Because stopping it can kill you. Uh, not to not to strike fear into the hearts of those uh, that are working with folks who want to become abstinent from alcohol, or those who may be trying to do so themselves. We'll talk about uh, withdrawal in just a moment. Um, but Again, right now during the pandemic, if people are potentially dependent, truly chemically dependent on alcohol, they're going to want to make sure they have a bit of a supply. And again, as things go, if we go into lockdown again, um, the hours are decreased at stores, things like that. Those are pieces you might want to talk with your clients around that really don't want to go into withdrawal. Um, and similarly, talking with just a plan to know your dose. Um, uh, Right here in this image, we've got what a standard drink is, and that's a 12 uh, fluid ounce bottle or can of beer, um, five, I don't really think four ounces applies, five ounces of wine, and 1.5 ounces of 80 proof liquor. Um, Great strategies for just harm reduction in general with drinking have to do with understanding blood alcohol level. Um, So if you can help people to start counting their drinks, and then work with them through calculating what their blood alcohol level would be based off of their gender and their weight um, and time and the duration of the drinking episode, you can help them sort of gauge where they wanna get to. Um, We know that people tend to start dying around like a 0.35 or 0.40 blood alcohol level. We know the legal limit for driving is 0.08. There's a lot of in between there um, and like subjective sense of intoxication really looks different for every person, Uh, but keeping people out of a state where they have um, overdose on alcohol can be aided by counting drinks. Another thing counting drinks can help with is preventing withdrawal. If someone is trying to decrease their drinking uh, or maybe has less access to alcohol, again related to the pandemic or finances or whatever, Um, Finding a way to ensure that people have a drink every hour, every couple hours, depending on how fast their body metabolizes alcohol, Um, that's the strategy that can be used to manage uh, potential for withdrawal. So withdrawal. Withdrawal can begin within four to six hours of a last drink. That could be three hours for some people, that could be 10 hours for some people. Again, everyone metabolizes alcohol differently and based off of how much someone has been consuming on a regular basis, that can be impacted as well. Um, 12 to 48, which is a big window, uh, hours after uh, withdrawal. And again, this is for someone who's been drinking regularly and truly does have chemical dependence on it. Uh, Seizures can begin 12 to 48 hours after that last drink. Um, that can progress to severe symptoms like DTs, delirium tremens. Um, so why do we want to avoid that? Um, the issue is that seizures, of course, aren't necessarily going to kill someone. Um, but what can happen when someone has a seizure, perhaps if they fall or something um, sort of secondary happens, that can cause risk of death. Um, and so, what's going on in uh, delirium tremens? So, the brain's not really able to smoothly readjust its chemistry after alcohol is stopped. So this creates this like kind of dangerous whiplash effect. Um, it creates temporary confusion on how the brain is regulating your circulation and breathing. So, sort of these key pieces that the brain needs to look after, if it's not well able to do that when DT start. Um, So what you'll see the body's vital signs doing uh, is the heart rate or blood pressure changing dramatically or unpredictably, and that creates a risk of heart attack or stroke. Um, So a bit different than the seizures that can start earlier, uh, higher risk when we get later and DTs are in place. Okay. Encouraging the use of water along with alcohol helps also. Yes, drinking water is important. Nothing except for time, however, will reduce your blood alcohol level when we think about um, alcohol poisoning. Uh, it is truly really just like up to your liver and the clock, um, however, eating food and drinking water can help with sort of that subjective sense of intoxication, and it can also help, of course, with the impact to the GI uh, system. Uh, eating food and drinking water is helpful. If the client is having DTs, could they be hospitalized? Yes. So if someone is having DTs, they, they need some sort of help. Like they're likely going to need, if someone has already gone into withdrawals, the ideal intervention is probably getting them some alcohol if you're just working with the person and they're able to have a small dose to, to uh, prevent the withdrawal symptoms from increasing. Um, otherwise, someone going into detox, uh, a supervised detox that's a medically assisted detox would be the the ideal option. Um, now how accessible those are that is why um, suggesting that people just know their their sort of withdrawal prevention dose of alcohol is a good tactic um, if that person's not wanting to go into a, a, a setting like detox. Um, let's see here yeah severe symptoms require inpatient care Medication can also assist with mild to moderate symptoms, even via outpatient. We really want to support people into scheduling their um, cessation of alcohol if they are dependent um, and making sure they're in the best possible uh, sort of situation and planning for success and safety. Um, other things that people can withdraw from include benzodiazepines that can be a bit risky. People can experience seizures that, of course, then could potentially result in death. Um And, yeah, the, the, the prevalence of delirium tremens occurs in, like, 5% of people experiencing alcohol withdrawal symptoms, and it kills 5% of those. So how that shakes out numbers-wise, I, I couldn't say, but it is a risk factor. It is a real thing. All right. So benzodiazepines, if dependent, um, they're... There could be seizures if someone uh, withdraws sharply. Um, We'll cover a resource later today called the Icarus Project, which is a guide, a a robust guide on coming off of psych meds, and it includes some content on coming off of benzodiazepines. But really, you just want to wean. You want to wean off, uh, especially if you have a high tolerance. Um, Opiates. We know a bit about withdrawal. We'll talk about that in the context of MIT. What really isn't the worst thing in the world, at least in terms of medical risk, uh, is withdrawing from stimulants. Uh, People just find it really uncomfortable and there could be uh, an upkick in psychiatric symptoms. Um, People may need alternate coping mechanisms. They may need ways to manage their sleep and um, they may need caffeine, they may need nicotine, they may need things to just be a little bit more alert to get through the periods where they've been accustomed to having a stimulant in their body. If um, anyone is detoxing at all on anything, again, food, water, actually uh, electrolyte-based drinks like Pedialyte or or, um, really nutritious drinks like Ensure are good options, especially if people have nausea and vomiting related to their withdrawal symptoms. Um, Also, over-the-counter medications to help deal with some of those symptoms and things like uh, Imodium for our GI symptoms as well can be helpful. Okay, so polysubstance use is probably the vast majority of the people you work with. Um, People tend to not just do one one substance um, and many people are already on psychiatric medications like benzodiazepines um, and some others that interact with uh, street drugs or alcohol. So, the thing you got to worry about with polysubstance use is that while some some uh, substances, some drugs and some medications and alcohol um, layer together and they just, one does this, one does that, in fact one might take away from the effects of the other a little bit, some potentiate each other, some are synergistic, some don't just like, they don't just add on, They they make one plus one equal five. Um, So we see that with uh, CNS depressants, central nervous system depressants, and that includes alcohol, benzodiazepines, and opioids. That's really um, the risk factor. I was watching something recently that I I didn't quite get to uh, write down the stat, but just how many of the opioid overdoses that have occurred in some number of years in recent time people had alcohol or benzos on board as well. So do we know actually, you know, if someone overdosed, they had opiates in their system, but could it have actually just been the cumulative effect of all these CNS depressants together? It could be more of a factor than we're aware of. Um, So benzodiazepines and alcohol have a lower risk of overdose than opioids when used by themselves. Um, Of course, in combination, the risk really increases so is that making sense to people things that aren't gonna potentiate like using a stimulant along with a benzodiazepine it's impacting the the body in different ways um you know i think some of the risk you see with stimulant use in alcohol is that people are able to stay awake so much longer and consume much more alcohol without feeling intoxicated and that can be um that can increase the risk of over intoxication from alcohol um, some other sort of uh, scenarios might be um, people who are layering things on, like some some medications that might help uh, sedate them otherwise, like um, uh, diphenhydramine, which is Benadryl, or uh, dextromethorphan, which is a cough suppressant found in, in NyQuil. Things like that can also um, impacts uh, alcohol and these other medications somewhat synergistically and be a little bit sneaky. Um, other people might not consider the fact that um, they are they could also impact how how it, intoxicated, how sedated, and then also how much uh, central nervous system depression is occurring. Basic strategies, and these, we'll be sort of repeating these throughout, uh, for safer substance use, uh, polysubstance use specifically, involve low and slow. So consuming the smallest amount of the thing that you're doing um, and not doing another dose, especially if you're using other substances at the same time for as long as possible. Really proving to yourself that you've let the drug kick in as much as you think it's going to. Um, Staggering different substances too. So if someone is going to uh, use two or more substances ideally not doing them at the exact same time, so they can gauge what the effects are of each substance before moving on to the next. And that could look like 15 minutes, that could look like an hour, um, but it's just a good thing to do. Also understanding that the more someone becomes intoxicated on one substance, the less they'll be able to prepare another substance. For example, someone who's been drinking heavily may not prepare a syringe of heroin in the cleanest and safest way possible. They might get that dose slightly wrong. Um, So doing that preparation in advance before becoming intoxicated at all is ideal. Doing a little bit of planning there is helpful. Um, Avoid using alone. I know this is another one that, you know, easier said than done for some people who are quite isolated and wherever their uh, housing is or if they're unhoused and they're trying to find safe places to use. They might not know anyone that they're comfortable using around or who is safe to use around. Um, But strategies for not using alone are are really critical because of uh, overdose risk, right? Um, And I'll talk about a resource in just a minute that can be used uh, to help with that. Uh, Making an overdose plan if you are using with a buddy, Um, so having Narcan on hand, um, getting sort of like, not just consent from a friend or whoever you're using with, but just saying like, hey, if if I do this, can you do this? Mm -hmm. Um, Staggering the use with the buddy also, so having one of you get high and then the other one, um, especially if we're using opiates, can be an option. Uh, Logging doses or drinks. Again, easier said than done once intoxicated, but uh, keeping track even if that's just like a tick mark um, on a notepad or or one's hand um, on like what time you took a dose of let's say heroin or how many drinks you've gone through, things like that can be helpful. And again, keeping in mind polysubstance use and the potentiating effect of those central nervous system depressants. So we are going to continue to talk about... Um, kind of obiates for a while now in in the context of overdose prevention, safer use, uh, reduced risk of disease transmission, and uh, medication-assisted treatment. Uh, David, if you wanna cue up this video, so, for those that aren't familiar with safer or supervised injection sites, this isn't going to be comprehensive information. I encourage you to read up a little more. Um, the first one in North America was at a place called Insight in Vancouver, Canada, and they had a a, a big opiate issue years ago. Perhaps, I guess, perhaps as bad as some that you see in um, uh, the United States from around the time that Insight opened. Um, but it's a... Uh, again, controversial, Uh, talk about enabling, people sometimes struggle with this, uh, and we won't know until these programs uh, are in place in in America to know how- Turn now to
1: our special series we call Undercovered.
0: We won't know how impactful they can be until we just try them out, Uh, but the data from Europe and from Canada is showing positive results. Um, People are getting connected to treatment, so many deaths are prevented uh disease transmission is looking more is is managed better so for people who are going to use it is a safer option and it it is a good public health intervention Um, but you can form your own opinions and david can play this video and i'll stop talking
1: turn now to our special ongoing series we call undercovered This week we're focusing on battling addiction.
0: NBC News investigative correspondent Ronan Farrow is here. He's looking at stories that are tied to the war on drugs, and you don't always see these ones on the headlines. Ronan, good morning to you.
1: It's good to see you guys. You know, we're really at a turning point in terms of how America addresses drugs and addiction. Just a few days ago, Attorney General Jeff Sessions ordered harsher sentences for drug offenders. But some states and cities are pushing back with approaches that emphasize treatment rather than criminalization. America's opioid epidemic is claiming more lives than ever, often in public places. People are in doorways, shooting up, dying and dying in alleys. John Urquhart is the sheriff of Seattle and surrounding King County, where someone dies from an opioid overdose every 36 hours, and where officials are about to try a radical new response. Take the problem off of the streets, around here at least, and put it in a safe environment. He's talking about safe injection sites where addicts can openly shoot heroin and other drugs under medical supervision.
2: They're not gonna overdose, or if they do overdose, there'll be treatment there, and they can talk to people about what their treatment options are.
1: Seattle and King County launched a task force to look at the crisis and are now acting on its recommendation to open the first two safe injection sites in the country. Tell me your reaction when you first heard this idea was being floated. My reaction was, are you kidding me? it's a terrible idea and what changed your thinking the war on drugs the fact that it didn't work so what are we going to do differently the war on drugs kicked off by president nixon in the 1970s started a trend of tough laws that lock up drug offenders more people are now incarcerated for drug crimes than for violent crimes disproportionately minorities and poor people and spending on drug control has increased for decades but addiction rates have stayed constant we're just starting to quit looking at drug abuse as a police problem and look at it as a health problem. County Health Officer Dr. Jeffrey Duchin was part of the task force. Some people are going to hear about this concept and find it completely crazy. Well, we're considering this a a public health crisis.
2: It makes a lot of sense from a public health and medical perspective.
1: He says safe injection sites have worked elsewhere. Here in the heart of Vancouver's Skid Row, officials opened a safe injection site called Insight in 2003. Every day 700 users come in, get clean needles, choose one of these stalls and shoot their drugs. More than 4,000 people have overdosed, not one has died. This is kind of a before and after picture of me. This is when I was actively using drugs and this is me now. Guy Felicella says he came here thousands of times and overdosed five. This is where I overdosed here and uh, I was on this floor right here, a nurse that uh, through her interventions, brought me back to life, and it was after that that, uh, you know, I made the decision to uh, seek treatment options and, and change my life. Today, he's four and a half years sober and happily married with two kids and a full-time job. When I was ready, they were here to help me. Compassion is, is, is one of the greatest gifts of the world. Similar sites are operated across Europe and Australia, And some experts say they're working. Dr. Sarah Wakeman of Mass General wrote the case for supervised injection facilities in the New England Journal of Medicine.
3: We've got very promising evidence from other sites and other countries that show this is a piece of the broader strategy.
1: But many people think this is a bad idea.
0: Uh, What happens is you bring more addicts to your location.
1: Gretchen Taylor is a member of the Neighborhood Safety Alliance of Seattle. For her, this is personal. I'm the parent of an adult ongoing heroin user. What do you say to parents who say, you know, I too fear for my child, and I think this might save them?
0: I want that to be true. And the truth is, I don't believe that is true. This
1: bill pre- a new pre- bill s- introduced in the Washington the Senate seeks site, to ban the safe injection sites. Right State Senator Mark Molosha is behind it. it. What they've done in Canada
4: is basically legalize heroin use. SAFE INJECTION SITES ARE A DEADLY IDEA.
1: AND WITH NEW ATTORNEY GENERAL JEFF SESSIONS PUSHING A TOUGH LAW ENFORCEMENT APPROACH ON DRUGS, there are questions about how the federal government will react. The Controlled Substances Act prevents setting up places like this where you've got people using drugs inside. Could you be in the position of asking your officers to enforce illegal activity here?
0: There's certainly a good argument that the officers can't be charged
1: federally. I'm not going to let our efforts here locally be dictated what the federal government may or may not do. Our new attorney general is more about law enforcement approaches to drugs and less about public health approaches.
3: That's probably true. I think that's a
0: huge mistake. Is it going to work? I don't know. But it's better than doing nothing. And that's what we've done for too long, is we've done nothing except try to put people in jail that absolutely
2: doesn't work.
1: The Department of Justice did not comment on this story. It's likely to be on the radar soon, though. There are safe injection sites being considered in San Francisco, Philadelphia, Massachusetts. New York actually recently appropriated funds as well to study whether we should have one right here.
0: This could get a debate really going because I think there are a lot of different sides to whether or not this is Mm -hmm. a good idea. It
1: clearly works for saving lives as we were discussing while we were watching this, but the broader impact on the communities these go into is really, you know, yet to be decided. And there are going to be some people who just can't get their head around the idea of trying to stop people from doing drugs by giving them a safe place to do drugs. This is the crux of the whole drug war debate. We have an administration launching a tougher, criminalizing approach. There are people who say that's right. There are other people who say you just mitigate the downsides.
0: Mm -hmm. What do you have tomorrow? Because we're still focused on the one. That's
1: right. And this is another big controversial one. You may find it surprising. We looked at rehabilitation centers that are using marijuana to get people off of heroin, to get them off of harsher.
0: So feel free to comment in the chat uh, your thoughts on that video. You've seen it. You're still overwhelmed and hopeful. Yeah. Not a perfect solution. Yes. So again, Europe has been using these for decades and insights been around for almost 20 years. Um, We're not gonna, it's just not a reality yet. Uh, Some of these proposed and potential pilot programs aren't accessible and they're certainly not accessible in LA County. Um, We're focusing on what we can do, but uh, uh, yeah, you can do your own research. There's tons of materials and videos on this. I think what you will see is Um, In some of the more kind of progressive cities with pretty bad um, overdose rates are guerrilla setups for safer injection sites where grassroots groups are going out and creating tents and just creating that space in parks for people to use more safely and having Narcan on hand, having clean needles, having resources to get people connected to treatment. This video doesn't quite highlight how how much of a piece that is how many people get engaged in services maybe whether it be case management or addiction services um just by going into the one of those uh one of those spaces to use where they otherwise just were completely disconnected and just in alleys and you know not not having any other impetus to receive services okay let's see what the comments look like this is crazy first time hearing about this um not a perfect solution. Yes. Right. Puzzling that there's evidence in so many other countries that this prevents death. yet so many people in this country seem to be against it. We have the war on drugs and rhetoric and propaganda and how we've come to our, our beliefs that have been uh, influenced by that to think for why there's resistance and, and stigma. Um, very interesting concept. I can see the pros and cons. Wonder how the pandemic has changed substance use trends. That will be really interesting to understand. I look forward to seeing whatever data uh, comes out. Um, Learned about programs that provide needles, but not a place to do it. Research does support effectiveness, yes. So LA County does have syringe exchanges, uh, which is what you're talking about. And those are also called, you'll see them referred to as SEPs, NSPs, um, and uh, SAPs, I believe, also syringe access programs, syringe exchange programs, and needle or NEPs, needle exchange program. Um, the best evidence from modeling studies suggests that uh, supervised injection sites are associated with lower lower overdose mortality, fewer ambulance calls for treating overdoses, and decrease in HIV infections. Yes. Okay. So. Um I don't know what again, I don't know what your sort of anecdotal experience is like in working with your f s p clients um we hear uh from you all uh, there's a lot of methamphetamine use there's definitely a lot of marijuana use and alcohol use and we we hear there's opiate use um i I don't know how how that sort of feels uh proportionally within your caseloads um but it's tough to overdose on stimulants, it, it can happen. You can absolutely, um, it, it, that can occur. People can die that way. Um, it's just not, uh, It's not the risk is not as great as with um, opiates, which is why we're gonna focus more on that when we talk about overdose. And again, now there's the issue of fentanyl being put into stimulants, so that's completely thrown everyone for a loop. Um, but with, uh, Uh, Overdose data for LA County from 2013 to 2018. So overdose uh, accounted for 21% of the deaths of LA County's homeless uh, population, which is not good. Um, And 88% of that was due to drugs, only 12% was due to alcohol. And that that rate has doubled since 2013, with the sharpest rate increase occurring since 2016. And of course, we've got two two more years of data after that, so we'll get some updated statistics uh, when we can um so california statewide uh there's been a 42 percent increase from 2012 to 2018 in opioid overdose deaths i think the most poignant piece here is the fentanyl overdose deaths increased by 858 percent from 2012 uh, to 2018 and there is an increase in amphetamine or methamphetamine overdose uh, deaths now i don't know if that's I don't know how much overlap there is between the fentanyl-influenced deaths where people had amphetamines in their system, and then that and fentanyl versus just methamphetamine. Um, but that is increasing as well. Okay. So, again, overdose prevention basics. Uh, we want to ensure that people have Narcan or Naloxone. Um uh, Narcan's the brand name. Naloxone is not. And we'll talk about uh, how that's used, or no, I won't talk about it. We are actually going to watch a video on how to administer it. Um, but it's free, it's accessible, trying to find it and get it in the hands, and the hands of the family members, friends, youth buddies, whatever, of the people you serve is critical. If it's not there, it won't save them. Um, avoiding using alone, we talked about that. A resource for this is, a, is um, a website called Never Use Alone, so that's something that people can call in to a number that they have, or use Facebook Messenger if they have a smartphone, um, and they will monitor for non-responsiveness. You can call in and they'll an operator will stay on the line and uh keep you know checking in with a person and then if they're non-responsive they'll have the individual has to share their location and 911 could then be called and sent to that location. Um, they'll also check in for information on allergies, pre-existing conditions. Um, now this is just one option. If someone has a phone and they can do this with anyone else that they know, just be like, hey, I'm gonna take a dose now. Can you stay on the line with me? If I stop responding, this is where I am. Um, if now Will people do that or not? I don't know, but for some folks, I've definitely worked with. Um, they they really would have appreciated that sort of uh, option that was anonymous as well. Okay. Again, if alone, trying smaller doses to lower your risk of overdose and going slowly and uh, staggering use, and making an OD plan with your use buddies. Sentinel. So, sentinel is. I think annoying isn't the right word. Um, Tragic and sad is a better word. So fentanyl is a, um, uh, it's a pain medication actually. People typically receive it in patches, I I believe is like the main form, um, maybe post-surgery. It's something that can be used to deliver like an ongoing dose of pain relief. Um, It's a synthetic opioid and what you see now, is that it's possible to get that medication even from a patch form and turn it into uh, something that can be mixed with heroin and then mixed with other drugs. And again, I still don't fully understand why that's occurring. Some people postulate that it has something to do with sabotaging um, you know other drug dealers um, you know, contaminating their batches. Some people think that it's a form of like population control and there's conspiracy theories about it. I genuinely don't know and I don't think we know yet uh, why it's being put in drugs that it doesn't, it's not the same drug of like stimulants. Um, But so some people use fentanyl, some people use that recreationally. Uh, And if they are, they're doing that um, pretty carefully, I hope. Uh, But more often it's being put into heroin and uh, it's used to sort of increase the potency But unfortunately, because it's just like, you know, the the tiniest, tiniest little amount is uh, so potent, it's really easy to overdose on. Um, There's also some, and I don't quite know the right words for this, but there are more synthetic sort of copies or uh, similar drugs to fentanyl, like croton fentanyl as an example. That's something that's... Coming out, Um, these are all like research chemicals, essentially that are being made in other countries. Um, The interest in continuing to uh, iterate on fentanyl and include it in drugs, uh, and with that continued risk, seems to be it seems to be a trend that's not going to stop. Um, But what we can do with it, again, having people know their dealer, know their their dosing, um, and getting uh, fentanyl test strips is a good option for people that are going to use drugs just in general. I mean, fentanyl testing really could be applied to anything anyone's using at this point unless it's like a, a, they're uh, using pharmaceuticals um, and they see that that pill in pill form. Um, I want to see what demographic similarities among the people that you worked with that use that. I don't understand your question. I'm thinking younger people or maybe people with families what were, I don't don't quite, I don't know people that use that line. I know people that would have appreciated it, uh, that ended up having to like call me and have me stay on the line instead, Um, so that's where I'm coming from that with, I I don't know anyone that's actually used, never used alone specifically. Um, You can check out to see if they use Spanish, Um, no, they weren't younger, okay, Um, so fentanyl just like any other opiate, is uh, reversed by naloxone, also called Narcan. Um, What you will see if people have taken doses of heroin or something else with fentanyl in it, or have used fentanyl specifically, um, is that it takes uh, more doses of Narcan than just one sometimes. It'll work for a bit, it'll reverse the impact of the opiates and then it will get kicked off of the receptor sites and the opiates go right back and so another dose is necessary. Uh, Test strips can be obtained through a couple of places in LA County, perhaps more than this, and chime in if you um, know of more uh, resources, but the LA LGBT Center and, um, I feel like this is a typo here, APLA, (laughs) sorry. Um, It's not the aid project, Uh, but those are resources that you can access Let's see here. I think I've got another slide on this. Oops, sorry. Um, You can also check out the Overdose Education Naloxone Distribution Network. So that's at LAOD Prevention. They have a good uh, sort of set of resources, including maps of where you can find Narcan and Naloxone and fentanyl as well, sorry, fentanyl fentanyl test strips um, and syringe exchange. They've got some training videos on there that are really helpful and uh, an MAT provider list. Okay. I'm gonna move a little bit faster here to get through some of this info, but if we could queue up the video for Narcan administration.
2: Naloxone saves lives. No time to sit idly by. More and more people are dying of overdose from the likes of heroin, fentanyl, and prescription pain medications like oxycodone and hydrocodone. These are all examples of opioids. Opioids are drugs derived from the opium poppy plant or made in the lab. They can treat pain, cough, and diarrhea. But opioids can also be addictive and even deadly. The number of opioid overdose deaths has escalated more than 400 percent since the turn of the century with tens of thousands of lives now being lost every year but many deaths can be prevented with a life-saving treatment naloxone when given right away naloxone can work in minutes to reverse an overdose naloxone is safe has few side effects and some forms can be administered by friends and family when is naloxone used you can save a life first recognize signs of overdose limp body pale clammy face blue fingernails or lips, vomiting or gurgling sounds, inability to speak or be awakened, slow breathing or heartbeat. If you see these symptoms call 911 immediately and consider the use of naloxone if available. How is naloxone given? Home preparations include a nasal spray given to someone while they lie on their back or a device that automatically injects medicine into the thigh, sometimes More than one dose is needed. The person's breathing also needs to be monitored. If the person stops breathing, consider rescue breaths and CPR if you are trained until first responders arrive. How does naloxone work? Naloxone is an opioid antagonist, which means that it blocks opioid receptors from being activated. It is so strongly attracted to the receptors that it knocks other opioids off. When opioids are sitting on their receptors, they change the activity of the cell. Opioid receptors are found on nerve cells all around the body. In the brain, opioids produce feelings of comfort and sleepiness. In the brainstem, opioids relax breathing and reduce cough. In the spinal cord and peripheral nerves, opioids slow down pain signals. In the gastrointestinal tract, opioids are constipating these opioid actions can be helpful. The body actually produces its own opioids called endorphins, which help calm the body in times of stress. Endorphins help produce the runner's high that helps marathon runners get through grueling races. But opioid drugs, like prescription pain medications or heroin, have much stronger opioid effects and they're more dangerous. Over time, frequent opioid use makes the body dependent on the drugs When the opioids are taken away, the body reacts with withdrawal symptoms such as headache, racing heart, soaking sweats, vomiting, diarrhea, and tremors. For many, the symptoms feel unbearable. With continued use, opioid receptors also become less responsive, and the body develops tolerance to the drugs. More drugs are needed to produce the same effects, which makes overdose more likely. Overdose is dangerous, especially for its effect in the brainstem, relaxing breathing. Breathing can be relaxed so much that it stops leading to death. Naloxone knocks opioids off their receptors all around the body. In the brainstem, naloxone can restore the drive to breathe and save a life. But even if naloxone is successful, opioids are still floating around so expert medical care should be sought as soon as possible naloxone works for 30 to 90 minutes before the opioids return to their receptors naloxone may promote withdrawal because it knocks opioids off their receptors so quickly but otherwise naloxone is safe and unlikely to produce side effects naloxone saves lives from 1996 to 2014 at least 26,500 opioid overdoses in the United States were reversed by laypersons using naloxone. While naloxone is a potentially life-saving treatment, more needs to be done to solve the opioid overdose epidemic. The National Institutes of Health launched the HEAL Initiative in 2018, expanding research across multiple NIH institutes and centers to speed scientific solutions to the national opioid crisis research is underway to improve treatments for opioid misuse and addiction and to enhance pain management. The National Institute on Drug Abuse, or NIDA, is the leading NIH Institute for Research on Opioid Misuse and Addiction, and its support helped the development of the user-friendly Naloxone nasal spray. For more information, see NIDA's website at drugabuse.gov and search Naloxone, or visit NIH.gov and search NIH HEAL Initiative. General opioid information can also be found at MedlinePlus.gov. This video is produced by MedlinePlus, a trusted source of health information from the National Library of Medicine. All right, um, thoughts
0: on that video? Maybe not as controversial as the last one. Uh, <laughs> we're uh, um, if looking at uh, cartoons isn't quite the same thing as doing that with a person, of course. Um, but you can, uh, when obtaining our can ask for training, you can get usually trainers to do uh, large group ones if you wanna get your whole staff trained, highly recommend it. And all of your staff should probably carry it. Again, I know I know opiate use is, people aren't using heroin as much as maybe in some other large cities. I know David and I saw a lot of it in New York. Um, but all the same, fentanyl is um, seems to be in everything, so it's it's still something to um, to have on hand. And I see some comments um, up above. Although there may be positive results, uh, I think this is about the supervised injection sites. Not yeah, must be. It opens the door to increased sales and drug trafficking. and can also become more exposed to younger generations, creating problems for their development. I'd love to hear some evidence of that. i read completely the opposite, um, that it's really effective for uh, uh, reducing overdose deaths, connecting people to, uh, to care, to, to services, and um, making sure they aren't having like secondary effects like abscesses, uh, make them more sick. Um, yeah, I think I, I'd love to hear some evidence if there is evidence to the contrary. It looks like the studies from, Uh, at least Insight in Vancouver didn't show that honeypot effect of people are just going to do more drugs because they can do it safely. Quite the opposite, actually. Um, But feel free to show some evidence in the chat. And how long do the withdrawal symptoms last after taking naloxone? I don't know. I think that would be you know, however long someone is gonna experience withdrawal until they do another dose, right? Um, So it's gonna kick you into withdrawal. And if you're someone who's become quite dependent um, chemically on an opiate, I would assume your symptoms would be severe and last longer. If you're not um, in that position, perhaps they'd be more brief. But again, those would uh, be remedied by the next either dose of um, an opiate or by a medication assisted treatment. And have you heard of naloxone being referred to as a Lazarus drug? No, I haven't, but that makes sense. Okay, naloxone finder. Uh, So this is a harm reduction coalition, uh, new app, I guess it's an app, Uh, but right now you can access it through their website and it's finding um, naloxone resources all across the country. So in the off chance that you'd need it outside of California, that's an option, otherwise, or outside of LA County, Otherwise you can check out uh, ON's website, uh, the LAOD prevention website that I just had up. Okay, so medication assisted treatment. I am not the best person to talk about this. I feel like I learn what the medications are and then their big names uh, confuse me and I forget them almost immediately afterwards. So you'll have to forgive me if I sort of stumble through this. Um, For alcohol use disorder, there are different medications than for opiate use disorder, except for one, and that's naltrexone, that actually applies to both. Um, So we can start with talking about naltrexone. Uh, So naltrexone is a good option for um, people who are perhaps ambivalent and might wanna keep drinking um, because it's not gonna cause them some really severe adverse effects if they do drink on it. Um, Ideally though, you, you want to not be drinking on it, and if it's used for opiates, the person actually has to have stopped for about a week, a week and a half, um, ideally. There's a short-acting and a long-acting version, um, and what naltrexone does for both opiates and alcohol uh, is it it reduces the the euphoric effect, so that reward that occurs um, when people consume either substance. They're not getting that same sort of intoxication and high and euphoria. So they're going to be less motivated to uh, continue to use either substance. Um, Let's see what to say about it. Vivitrol is the long acting. um, It's perhaps becoming more popular, I guess. I kind of have that sense. Um, Let's see. People need to carry like a card on them that says they're using it. if someone is, things to think about for uh, naltrexone, if someone is, let's say they're on opiate medication, opioid medication, sort of separately, like a pain medication, uh, they need to figure out a good um, sort of balance of those things because ideally you want them off of opiate. So. Chronic pain management, or like let's say someone has uh, an accident or has surgery, um, those are things to think about, especially for the long acting medication because it lasts, I believe, for a month uh, per dose. Um, let's say, what else to say about naltrexone? It's a good option. Um, a lot of people seem to do well on it uh, for either. Um, it's not something uh, that's I mean, I think, yeah, routine monitoring of liver function is recommended, but in terms of its other systemic effects, it's not uh, terribly um, high risk for causing other adverse effects. A comprosate is called campral or campral depending on your accent. It's been around since 2004. Um, It's for people in recovery who are no longer drinking alcohol and want abstinence. So you would start it usually like five days after someone had their last drink, Um, perhaps after detox or during. Um, It's offered in like a tablet form. And what it does is it affects the neurotransmission of GABA and glutamate, I believe. Um, And if people know more about this, please feel free to tell me if I'm getting things wrong. Uh, But it's it's helpful in uh, relapse prevention and decreased alcohol consumption among those who do relapse. Uh, so it, it can also be helpful for symptoms of protracted alcohol withdrawal. And again, this is for people who are one abstinence. It's not for people who are ambivalent. Um, they won't feel great if they drink on it. Okay, disulfiram. Antabuse. Um, you've probably heard of Antabuse. Uh, some of you may have, may have people who've tried to use it as a medication-assisted treatment for alcohol use. Um, it is not pleasant. The whole point of antabuse is to uh, get rid of the enzyme that helps us break down alcohol, uh, which is aldehyde dehydrogenase. Um, and when we don't have that enzyme functioning, alcohol makes people very sick. So, antabuse is meant to deter people from drinking because if they drink on it, They will feel terrible. Um, They'll have uh, nausea, vomiting, dizziness, flushing, palpitations, hypotension. Um, And if you've ever had anyone who's drank on it, if they told you how they felt, they felt horrible. Um, Alrighty, what else to say about that? Yeah, you feel horrible immediately, like within 10, 15 minutes. And I think it lasts, If um, I'm forgetting, I think it lasts for about 12 hours per dose um but sometimes those effects if let's say you just took one dose and then drank days later some people uh, depending on how how that enzyme sort of repopulates in their system i think it can take um up to maybe a week or so to actually be able to drink again after stopping it but that's again different for everyone um not commonly used it's one of those things that makes drinking a punishment um people usually just stop taking it i i don't i don't i've never worked with someone who started it as a last resort and kept it up Okay, so those are MAT for AUD and now for opiate use disorder. Opioid use disorder. I often say opiate because I can't pronounce opioid consistently. <laughs> um, so the popular one and oldest one is methadone. Um, so methadone sort of doubles as a something that reduces opiate, opioid cravings and of course binds to those receptors. And then it also uh, sort of blunts and blocks the effects of opioids. It also can uh, u- be used as a uh, chronic pain medication. So people who are struggling with um, chronic pain, this could be a good option for them. Uh, it's distributed through, uh, through uh, opioid treatment programs, OTPs that are certified by SAMHSA. Um, it's something that's a, it's a long game med. Uh, most people, don't take it for a month or two, they take it for a year, sometimes many years, sometimes the rest of their life. Um, if people are going off of it, they have to wean off because they can go into withdrawals otherwise. Um, how I think methadone is probably the one that's most popular for being confused for trading one drug addiction for another because dependency does occur on it. Um, but people aren't getting high, they'll get some pain relief, um, they won't go into withdrawal, and they, they will have um, some sleepiness. You see people often um, nodding after they've had their methadone dose for the day, if, especially if they're on a higher dose. Um, that's, that's absolutely part of the picture of methadone, but compared to the high in the euphoria that comes from opioid use, not the same, Um, so then the number of things that people will will do to obtain that drug versus just how willing they are to continue going to a methadone program that keeps them in a consistent uh, dose when they're not going to withdrawals, it's just totally different. Um, And if you want to understand this, talk to people. Talk to people who uh, have used methadone and what the experience is like from taking that to taking heroin or a narcotic pain reliever, it's uh, quite different. And let's see what else to say about it. So I'll talk about sort of the COVID changes to MAT take home and um, in a minute. But it's uh, often in liquid form. It can be in pill form. Um, it's uh, one dose is like, you know, a full day, basically. So it is a long half-life drug. It takes a while to metabolize. Um, yeah, nothing else to say about methadone. Uh, buprenorphine. Uh, so it's actually Suboxone is the brand name, and uh, Suboxone is a blend, if I'm not mistaken, of buprenorphine and naloxone. Actually, um, naloxone is that drug we were just talking about that is the overdose uh, um, overdose reversal medication. Uh, so why both are in there is a, a little hard for me to understand, but Buprenorphine is a partial opioid agonist that blocks the opiate receptors and reduces a person's urges, and then the can help reverse the effects of of opioids. So somehow those work together in a synergistic manner to um, be both like a substitute for and prevent withdrawal for people who are coming off of opiates. Um, So that's, again, preventing withdrawal, reducing cravings. Um, It's something that isn't as much of a long game, um, but people generally need to take it for six plus months. Um, People who take it for just one month and then stop, it's, I mean, I think there's a lot of relapse associated with sort of a shorter duration of treatment with Suboxone. Six to 12 months is the recommended duration. Um, It comes as a sublingual tablet or a film that dissolves under the tongue, usually once a day. Um, It doesn't create a high. Uh, in fact, it's probably less sedating than methadone for most people, so um, perhaps people can be a little bit more uh, alert and functional on it, depending on uh, the comparative dose to methadone. Um, let's see what else to say about Suboxone. It's a great option for people. Um, it's the initial doses are supervised in, um, by someone who can prescribe it, but then following that, you know, it can be a bit more independent. Methadone programs involve a lot of, like, you know, going to groups and going to person every day until you've proven that you're trustworthy to the program. Um, Suboxone perhaps has a little bit more of a uh, kind of trusting <laughs> dynamic to the use of it. Um, let's see here. I wonder about the compounding effects of buprenorphine, antipsychotics, antidepressants, and methamphetamine use, and that is beyond my knowledge. <laughs> so we, I think we've got a recording, if I'm not mistaken, from Brian Hurley, uh, Dr. Brian Hurley on MAT. He, that training or others we have in the future would probably be great options to do a deeper dive on this, because I'm definitely just doing sort of a cursory overview here. Um, but, yeah, great question. Um, the interactions between psych meds and every drug. I would love to have that knowledge or co facilitate a training on that because it's, it's, I mean, all of those specific um, interactions are really important to understand. Uh, so, what we have to do with our clients when they're taking a number of psych meds or maybe have some health conditions that could greatly impact uh, how they metabolize things or how uh, substances affect them. And then, along with maybe if they ha- have MAT also in the picture, consult getting con- consultation on that and understanding uh, the, the risks and um, best ways to support people through managing their regimens is, is really critical. Oh, David, thank you. You just put in that link on the training for MAT. I think it's just an hour or two, so easy watch. Um, MAT has increased access right now, and this is due to um, the public health emergency that we're currently in and trying to make it so people can access their uh, medication-assisted treatment more easily. Sort of what this can mean uh, is that people can uh, use telemedicine uh, more easily to initiate or keep ongoing prescriptions of um, some medication-assisted treatments and some other sort of formerly, uh, uh, like benzodiazepines were involved in office visit for a refill of a prescription. Now that can be done via telemedicine, for example. Um, But this is actually a great time if someone is not, what is ambivalent about their uh, substance use, uh, alcohol or opiates, and maybe doesn't have a consistent supply of either, or doesn't have consistent access, you could talk about MAT as a bit of a solution right now. it's again, that's a careful conversation that has to be done with making sure the person is ambivalent and is interested in finding something because right now maybe it's been awful that they've gone and had to go into withdrawals because they couldn't find their regular dealer or their supply was cut for some reason. Um, it, it's an option. Uh, I don't know. I think if, if it were presented in a way that sounded like you were trying to <laughs> sneak in a suggestion of something that someone didn't want under the guise of a COVID uh, strategy, might not go over as well, but the information is that telemedicine is going to be uh, for this this time period, and I think there's interest in having this last uh, post-COVID, that people should be able to access uh, MAT more easily, no matter what. Um, We'll see where that goes. We'll see how policy is impacted. Uh, But for right now, telemedicine is permitted for prescribing um, buprenorphine and uh, benzos. And then buprenorphine and naltrexone can be initiated with the telemed evaluation. New methadone patients still require a physical evaluation. So can't get past that. Um, Short takeaway, uh, so the methadone programs can provide more doses of take home methadone than they used to be able to. And there's some greater facilitation um, for isolated, quarantined individuals, allowing other people to go pick up their methadone for them. So that's really different. Um, Before it was you have to go in person, and and at least it would have been daily, every other day, or weekly pickups, not these um, 14 uh, days or 28 days for clinically stable patients. Okay, and let's see here. We can now also have folks have a 90-day supply of Schedule II controlled substances. Um, So that could include some of the narcotic pain medications. It actually includes methadone, but I don't think the programs are doing that. Um, It can include stimulants as well. I'm not sure. Again, this is up to like sort of the program or uh, MD's judgment or NP's judgment on whether this is appropriate or the person, it's a good fit for them clinically. Um, But those are examples. Uh, Prescribers are recommended to co-prescribe naloxone to those prescribed opioids. So there is a recommendation now official to (laughs) prescribe um, overdose reversal medication along with any narcotic pain medication that people have. Now, whether that's being done, I am not sure. Okay. So other COVID-19 considerations, um, again, tell people to try and stock up and monitor their dosing, spread things out, not to binge, to manage their tolerance and supply in a smart way. Um, Try to still buy from trusted people and have as many ways to contact their dealers as possible um, if they think they might go into withdrawal. And we've covered all this here on the right. Uh, Prepare your drugs yourself. Uh, Do not share drug use supplies. Um, all of the COVID precautions that people are already taking apply, of course. Um, just this is probably a bit obvious at this point, uh, but COVID-19 risks drug use, and respiratory concerns. Um, so some symptoms of withdrawal and COVID-19 might look the same. Uh, these can include like fever and muscle soreness. Also, people might just have a, a cough and be sick from um, just for other reasons. So with that, what you do with that. <laughs> i mean it, it's it's still a decision on um you know uh social distancing or potential isolation or quarantine and getting tested versus not um just helping people to be aware and track what's going on for them um let's say for some if someone was really terrified that they had COVID 19 but had been isolating but actually we're just going into withdrawals that might be something for them to think on um COVID-19 infections will, of course, uh, worsen breathing impacts of opioids, bentos and alcohol for that respiratory depression that comes with CNS depressants. So something to look out for there. Um, so if someone has COVID-19 and they're using these substances in combination, it might not be good for their respiration. Um, opioid withdrawal will may worsen breathing difficulties and then smoking, of course, drugs like crack or meth makes breathing problems worse. All this is pretty straightforward and obvious, but just things to think about. And when we th- think about risk reduction, we have to think about the greater context. Okay, um, drug set setting considerations for COVID-19. We will be going through that drug set setting triangle in a little bit. Um, so things to think about for COVID-19: reduced or inconsistent access is going to mean changes of potency in potency and dosing choices. Uh, for SETs, we think about high levels of fear and uncertainty, potentially exacerbated mental health symptoms, reduced access to care, uh, and that could be for mental health or physical. And then the setting, safer at home, will mean isolation for most and displacement for some. So thinking about those who have had to go, uh, who are were happy in their encampments or living in an encampment and then were um, forgetting the name of the places right now for some strange reason, but placed into a setting for uh, isolation that is going to impact their use and if they're at risk for withdrawal, it will definitely impact what's going on for them uh, in terms of their health and mental health. Um, It also will increase their overdose risk because their tolerance will change. Um, So tobacco and nicotine, we haven't talked about it much. Um, There's a lot of sort of mixed messaging around what is Tobacco harm reduction, Um, I think it's one of these where abstinence is probably the only answer for total risk reduction. But there are smokeless tobacco options that just we don't have quite enough evidence for um, or research around understanding what the risks of them could be, Um, specifically the e-cigarettes. Now we know uh, it's and chewing tobacco, we know that there are risks for like uh, mouth cancer and stuff like that, dental um, harm to uh, teeth and, Uh, throat cancer, esophageal cancer, I think is another that's involved. Uh, But yeah, uh, vaping and e-cigarettes, still much to learn on that front. I guess uh, many people are just crossing their fingers and hoping um, that it's actually a lower risk option. Um, So something to mention uh, for this group, nicotine and schizophrenia is a also something that needs a little bit more research, uh, but nicotine and schizophrenia have an interesting relationship. So I think the data is about like 80 to 90% of Americans who are diagnosed with schizophrenia are smokers. It's, it's an insanely high number. Um, and just patients actually with severe mental illness are three times more likely to smoke than the general population. But with this, like the incidence of lung cancer, uh, specifically for schizophrenia, is like 4X the rest of the population. So uh, nicotine is something that's really popular for one reason or another um, with people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia. Um, There are a couple of sort of theories on why this is. Um, Some think it's just like a sort of a behavioral thing. Um, It's something to do. Um, Some blame it on neurochemistry chemistry uh that like the dopamine that uh smoking uh nicotine um what's the right word elicits i'm just going to say elicits i don't remember the right <laughs> neuro word um it actually will help with that sort of with the negative symptoms of schizophrenia and it's going to help with like cognitive and sensory impairment um but at the same time dopamine's blamed for some of the positive symptoms right so it seems like a double-edged sword to me um i think that's uh just something we don't we don't quite know seems like a complicated relationship but there's some theorizing around that regardless it's something that uh with for whatever reason the prevalence is strong (laughs) it doesn't seem to be decreasing um and then what interventions you can use with people who are diagnosed with schizophrenia and also are smokers um, you can you can consider nicotine replacement therapies just like you would with anyone else. Those include lozenges, gum, patches. Um, often those can be found uh, low cost for people who are low income. Um, those are great options that uh, have far less risk. Other harm reduction strategies would include primary care and dental care. Um, let's see, your clients have said that it helps, it's because it helps them relax and distract from their thoughts. Yeah, I think there's, you know, there's the neurochemical impact and then there's, you know, the emotions like sort of the, when we evaluate what we do, um, the mindset we have when we do a thing, like for many people smoking, they got, they can handle not using the chemical of nicotine, but they, they can't get rid of the want to go outside and the want to inhale and exhale and do some deep breathing to hold something in their hand. It could be sensory. There's so many reasons why people um, smoke cigarettes. Um, or use some of these other options. Mindfulness and breathing and relaxation exercises help too. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's a smoking's a rough one. Uh, how to uh, how to successfully quit um, seems to be something that's really challenging. So we've not quite worked that out. And just to let you know, some of the research around, um confusingly around uh smokeless tobacco options some of that funding and some of the hands that are in that pot are actually tobacco companies they many of them own the smokeless options which again i it's this makes sense probably in some marketing bit way that i don't fully understand but when you're reading um evidence around uh, risk with some of those options really look at the source and look at uh Uh, look at uh, who is funding it, because a lot of it's not terribly pure and academic. Okay. Um, We're going to talk about marijuana and schizophrenia, or I'm not going to talk about it again. Someone else is. Uh, David, if you're ready, we can play that one.
3: Hi everyone, so today I wanna talk to you a little bit more about a bit more of a contentious issue um, around drugs and schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, particularly around marijuana or cannabis use and how it triggers or what effect it has on triggering psychosis or schizophrenia. So marijuana just recently became legalized here in Canada and I know it's legalized in various other parts of the world too and it's becoming more and more popular in terms of how much people are using it and whatnot. And with this is coming a lot of data and studies being done on what the effects of cannabis or marijuana are on people who are susceptible or predisposed to schizophrenia or psychosis. Um, So I just want to talk a little bit more about what this link is and what my experiences with um, experimenting with marijuana have been like. Alright, so with the legalization of marijuana here in Canada, the Government of Canada has released quite a bit of documents and facts around the use of cannabis use um, in relation to schizophrenia and psychosis. And they've stated that when you use marijuana on a daily basis or more frequently, you really increase your risk of developing schizophrenia or psychosis. And more potent um, cannabis or marijuana has been linked to an even higher risk of developing psychosis. The risk of developing schizophrenia or psychosis if you use marijuana before the age of 16 increases even more. And those people who have a family history of schizophrenia or psychosis are at an additionally increased risk of developing schizophrenia or psychosis with the use of marijuana. So they're really pushing for Canadians and people in general to just talk with their doctors before using any cannabis just to talk about what the potential effects on their health may be. So there are over 100 different chemicals in cannabis called cannabinoids. And these cannabinoids can um, change the way cells communicate with one another. And when in the brain, this can change the way an individual perceives reality, thinks, behaves, and feels. So THC is the cannabinoid in cannabis cannabis that is mainly responsible for the psychoactive component of um, cannabis. And so it could be assumed that the higher the THC content, the more psychoactive component there is going to be to the cannabis use, which may trigger psychosis more easily. It's also easy to see that the way these cannabinoids work in terms of altering the way a person thinks, feels and behaves and the way they perceive reality is very in line with the way psychosis presents itself in an individual with schizophrenia. And so it's kind of easy to see the correlation here between how psychosis could potentially be triggered from the use of cannabis. It has been estimated that cannabis use can account for 8% to 14% of all schizophrenia cases, although it is important to also note that the prevalence of schizophrenia has not increased with the increased use of cannabis and marijuana. In terms of my experience with it, my schizophrenia was not triggered by cannabis use. Um, I've kind of only started to dabble with it since it became legalized a year ago or so, So my experiences with marijuana use have been a little bit mixed, but have been kind of trending towards not so great. And so um, I kind of wanted to share some of my experiences with how I've flipped into psychosis with the use of marijuana in order to kind of better educate people on what the potential effects of smoking marijuana with a susceptibility to schizophrenia, or if you already have schizophrenia, what the risk factors can be or what can potentially happen if you do that. Um, I want to share my experience to hopefully encourage others to maybe not dabble with it or to just be really caution cautious if they do. So when I first started trying marijuana about a year ago or so, um, it it felt it felt good mostly. Um, and I understand why people with mental health issues particularly gravitate toward using substances like marijuana because um, it can really help to alleviate. Some of the stress and burden that you feel from some of your symptoms and it can really help to kind of um, numb or to just kind of soften I guess the symptoms that you're experiencing and it can be really helpful in that regard and so I understand why people with schizophrenia gravitate towards using substances like marijuana that said it did also increase some of my symptoms as well. So the first time that I tried it, I became really, really paranoid. Um, I became really paranoid that people were following me. I became really paranoid that Rob was cheating on me. Like I was convinced that he was cheating on me and I was just so sad and distraught about this um, and just ruminating on these things really like a lot and really getting stuck in my paranoia. This wasn't an awful experience. it it wasn't great because I was stuck in this rumination around my paranoia, but it wasn't awful. Um, the more frequently I used it though, which never was that frequently, like I've only used it like a handful of times in the last year or so, but the more frequently I used it, the more I felt um, stronger symptoms creeping up and the more I felt that I was slipping into psychosis when I used. So, the last time that I used, which will probably be the last time that I used in a very long time because it was a really awful experience, I slipped fully into psychosis. And I, I forgot who I was. I forgot, I, I became really fixated on what schizophrenia was. I couldn't remember what schizophrenia was. And I couldn't remember that I had it. And I couldn't remember what that meant. And I couldn't remember, I couldn't remember a lot of things. And just the way I was perceiving reality was really, really altered I also became convinced that I was living in some kind of simulation or that things weren't really real and that there was cameras throughout my house that were recording me in the simulation. And this this whole big narrative just developed in my mind that I couldn't really get a good grip on and I didn't really understand what was fully happening. And just my concept of reality was really, really warped. I was kind of looking to Rob to be like, are you experiencing this too? Like, what is happening? But It didn't seem like he was experiencing this uh, either. And from what I understand, most people who smoke marijuana or substances like this don't have this kind of experience. Um, So I think because I do live with schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder, I was much more prone to slipping into psychosis um, with the use of marijuana. So I just want to really drive home that this was a really terrifying experience and it was very much what psychosis feels like. The only difference being that this was a drug-induced psychosis um, as compared to a more natural schizophrenia-induced non-drug-induced psychosis. And so it, it really felt like when I'm at my worst in terms of my psychotic symptoms. And that was really scary and really disorienting. And I didn't really know how best to handle that or how to really get out of that. So I just kind of had to wait for the effects of the drugs to wear off. But that said, even after the effects of the drugs wore off, I still wasn't fully able to get back out of the psychotic state that I was in. So for days later, I still felt that I was living in a simulation. I still felt that... I didn't really have a good grasp on reality and I didn't really understand what was real and what was not. And so that was a really big problem for a few days after I smoked marijuana. I think the prolonged effects also were on my mood. So I had I had definitely had decreased mood and I was more lethargic and didn't have a lot of energy and that kind of thing. So, it really took a toll on me for the days after as well. Like I said in the beginning of this video, I I totally get why people gravitate towards these kinds of substances because they can help to mask some of the symptoms sometimes and they can feel good in that regard. But in my experience, the, the longer lasting effects and even the shorter lasting effects, it's gotten to a point where they have just become not worth it. Like it is just not worth it to have those masking effects of the symptoms um, because the psychosis and the lasting effects afterward are were just too much to handle and too much to bear. So if you do have schizophrenia or if you have a family history of schizophrenia, I would really urge you to be really cautious when dabbling with substances like marijuana or cannabis and to just be smart about it. If you are predisposed to it, if you know that you're predisposed to it, maybe stay away from it. If you aren't Maybe just look out for warning signs that something may be going wrong in terms of your marijuana use, just be aware. Some ways to kind of mitigate some of this risk may be to experiment with other people, so making sure that other people are around you so that if you do need to do some of that reality checking with them, you can do that, and you can kind of have people to ground you in reality. Another would be to maybe try lesser potent marijuana first and to see how that goes, so with the lower um, THC content, and to just kind of see how that goes before you go into the stronger THC content. Um, also not not smoking super frequently, so keeping it to like once a week max because studies have found that if you're smoking daily or more frequently, you are at a really more, a much more increased risk of developing psychosis or schizophrenia. And I just want to show you actually on the bottle, on the bottle that we got from the marijuana store um, with the the joints in it, it says, Warning, regular use of cannabis can increase the risk of psychosis and schizophrenia. Higher THC content can increase the risk of psychosis and schizophrenia. So it's right there on the label from the marijuana distributors. So it is a real concern and it's really something that you need to be cautious of when using marijuana. So some of you may be thinking, why would I smoke it if it says this on the bottle? Um, So yeah, I get why people are curious about using these mind-altering substances. I'm susceptible to that too. I wanted to experience um, something different than reality. So I get why people experiment, but I'm just really encouraging you to be as responsible and smart as you can when doing so. So thank you so much for watching. I hope hearing some of my experiences with marijuana and schizophrenia are helpful or educational in some way. Um, If you have any of your own experiences that you want to share, feel free to leave that in the comments below. So perhaps that video seems a bit odd and
0: that it's a little bit scary and we're trying to reduce the fear around uh, substance use. But it's also really important to include perspectives of people who are using and uh, we are focusing so little on um, the peer movement and including finding ways to include the voices of people who are uh, substance users. Um, so that's one attempt at it really quickly. Um, but yeah, she offers a really interesting uh, perspective that I think can often get a little glossed over. Um, I think there's a, uh, there's sort of a, internalized expectation that a lot of people have that they should be fine with uh, the effects of marijuana or cannabis because of their understanding of it from greater culture that it's a chill out thing, it's a calming thing, it has medicinal use and for some people it it really can be distressing and it it can be something that produces paranoia and anxiety and could induce psychosis. Um, So if you're working with folks Who experience psychosis or struggle with anxiety, um, talking to them about like what if if they're cannabis or marijuana users, talking with them around how it's how it's fitting with them. Uh, Because I've definitely worked with people who really struggled with using it, but continue to use it because they felt like it did work at a point. Um, Or, you know, maybe maybe their social environments influence them to use it. They just, you know, a joint gets passed around and they participate. Um, another thing to think about, if you've got people um, using uh, edibles, that's a longer effect. Uh, and that can, not, that can be a bit of a guarantee of uh, longer distress if they end up struggling sometimes with the impact of cannabis and marijuana, a THC. Um, so things to think about. Um, you have a former friend who had psychosis induced by marijuana leading to suicide. I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, that's really... Really awful and tragic i'm sorry i I can speak for myself i I cannot touch t h c It absolutely causes that's similar to what she's describing, and I don't experience um symptoms of psychosis in my life otherwise um, it would not be a good fit for me uh despite the potential other benefits it may have that I'm not aware of um, righty so We're going to wrap up and then take a break in just a minute. Um, There are a lot of other drugs out there, just want to point that out. We've been talking about alcohol, opioids, stimulants, and um, benzos just a little bit, and there's a lot of other stuff that people use. You don't have to know all of them, but if your clients talk about them, I recommend that you go get a little bit of education on them by understanding what the risks and benefits are. A great place to check out like kind of the user experience is from these websites in the bottom right, Arrowhead and Blue Light. They're like message board forum type things. Reddit's also a really great place to just get a sense for like what people experience when they do something um, where you're not gonna find that in the academic literature or through um, SAMHSA, you know, it's it's important if you can't find the resources in person to be able to still get the pers- honest perspective of what it's like, what, especially what the benefits are of using all these substances. A couple to highlight on here um, that are you know drugs of abuse, but some are now being used in uh, therapeutic ways. Ketamine is a great example. Um, I think we're all aware that the trials for um, different formats have used for ketamine and different purposes. Uh, have been pretty successful as a depression treatment. Um, what else? Uh, people, so there's, uh, the, let's see, I'm thinking about the MAPS group. They're the, what does that stand for? The um, the group that does uh, research on the therapeutic use of psychedelics. They're interesting to read up on. Um, I know there's been MDMA, sort of micro-dose assisted psychotherapy occurring in the country. So some of these things, are used therapeutically Um, a lot of people might think of like salvia or some uh some other uh hallucinogens like ayahuasca as spiritual healing um practices uh depending on their culture um that's something that people may pursue um that is meant to be a mental health healing thing not a recreational uh, or spiritual healing practice not just a recreational uh drug to use uh let's see so i'm going to wrap up after this slide um additional considerations for setting or targets for risk reduction so we've talked about all of these sort of like things to do with the drug um, and things that can uh matter for set and then for setting when we're considering harm reduction intervention targets we want to look at all of these other sort of like systems or setting based uh considerations uh, so where someone uses their drugs um, and understanding of their rights to be in a certain space can impact their risk of criminalization. Um, justice system involvement, probation, parole, so things that we can think around. Uh, justice system involvement include like building relationships um, with POs, uh, advocating for ODR, um, those are it's a lot on sort of like the on the on your behalf a lot of work on your behalf to do that advocacy and collaboration work, um, but that's stuff that can be helpful to mitigate risks from justice system involvement, maintaining housing, obtaining housing first style housing where people will not be kicked out for use um, or not be expected to use, stop using before they obtain housing, um, and then strategies for using in ways that don't disturb neighbors so their housing isn't threatened because they're not being seen as a nuisance. Financial impact is an area we need to consider. Um, uh, There's a lot of harm that can occur to people's finances, of course. Um, Budgeting and reducing reliance on loan sharks or predatory drug dealers that do price gouging. Uh, Relationships, sort of uh, thinking about how to have healthy romantic relationships, family relationships, social support, Um, Some interventions here might be around safety planning for coercive or DV relationships, um, building trusted community for support and overdose prevention, and then employment or vocational pursuits, developing meaningful role, um, how to maintain that if you've got it, scheduling use with time to sober up for work, um, planning around drug testing, navigating that so employment's not threatened if that's something that's really important to the individual. These are all just these um sort of like greater considerations for setting and systems that we will keep in mind when we go through the vignette and any other comments above that i missed um oh someone who continues to use heroin alcohol and downers while using methadone yeah so that 100 percent common, um, you know, and that's, that's absolutely something you want to work with that person around managing dosing and hoping that they are honest with their methadone program. Many are tested anyway, um, so they they would be known, but uh, definitely want to have that person supplied with um, uh, Narcan because uh, that could increase overdose risk, but does it end up becoming an addiction in Métis? I, d- I don't know. I don't know if, right, I think that's, that's a, a word to use judiciously. Um, David, I was just uh, catching a few comments in there, and hey. I will be happy to run the slides. Just cue me when you're ready. So we're going to
4: do some, uh, we're going to do, we're going to look at three vignettes today, and we're going to apply the drug set setting framework that Elizabeth ha- uh, has been uh, talking about and reviewing with everyone. So. What I'll do is I will um, I'll read the vignette out loud. I know everyone can can read, um, but just in case somebody's not looking at the screen or they're yeah, driving or something like that, I'll go ahead and read this aloud out loud. And then we're gonna do a discussion via Zoom. Um, and I know that's not the easiest. So you guys have been wonderful with using the chat box. So we'll continue to do that. And as I read through, you can just note what what you would do, or note what you uh, your thoughts around the drug. What what are the what's the set? What are the settings around this? And then what sort of harm reduction intervention strategies or targets um, would you identify? Um, and we're going to try to actually avoid using uh, any suggestions of, oh, this person needs to, you know, perhaps go to treatment or, or stop using or, or reduce it. We, we are assuming that the individual is, is, is not really interested in, in changing that behavior. Okay, so we're going to really try to apply that harm reduction strategies, please. So I will share my screen.
0: Which Last were? little bit there, you want to also note what, what you don't know and you need to know, what questions you would ask, because you can't all have all the information, of course, but what, would you, what else would you want to know to better determine harm reduction intervention targets?
4: Okay, so uh, vignette one. June is a 56-year-old woman who has been working with FSP for two years. She's diagnosed with bipolar one and diabetes and is prescribed Seroquel and insulin. Previously, she had been living in an encampment, and due to complications from her diabetes, she was hospitalized nine months prior and had to have three of her toes amputated. Following physical rehabilitation, she moved into a boarding care six months ago. June started drinking alcohol when she was 13, and she has no interest in stopping. She drinks about one-fifth of a, uh, one a fifth of liquor a day but her favorite is getting economy style boxed wine uh four boxes or four bottles in a box and going for long walks she says that since she has moved into the boarding care she wants to drink more because she's bored and misses her friends also when june is experiencing mania she likes to go on long walk, long walks and takes her boxed wine and a satchel with her sometimes staying outside overnight for a couple of nights at a time while her foot doesn't cause her too much pain due to neuropathy, she feels soreness elsewhere in her body and having to adapt uh, her gait. She says alcohol also helps dull that pain. Uh, she uses the cane to help her balance, which she frequently loses or has stolen when outside. The FST, FSP team has replaced her cane four times thus far um, with their funds that they have. As for medications, June won't take her Seroquel when drinking, as she worries about not being able to wake up. When staying at home, she is good about keeping her insulin refrigerated now that she has access to a fridge, but this uh, causes her to now miss doses of it when she goes on these long walks. June says that she is walking to find her friends, but because her boarding care is now so much farther away from her old encampment, it becomes much more confused and lost, and potentially due to intoxication, blood sugar issues, brain fog, and dehydration, which only elongates her walks and increases her risk. Her FSP team has had to pick up, uh, pick her up miles from her boarding care and bring her back, and they worry about not being able to find her and getting arrested, uh, and her getting arrested for public intoxication. The health of her feet they're also worried about, and of course her keeping her housing. The Board of Care has told the FSP team that she needs to communicate if she'll be out overnight and, uh, and she could risk losing her housing with this behavior eventually. So there again are the instructions uh, and there's the drug set setting diagram at the bottom so you can use that to reference. And um, so why don't we, uh, let me just pull up my chat box really quick. I don't know where it went. There it is, okay. So, going through the drug set setting, um, I'm not sure if anyone would like to start by typing in the chat, but can we, um, why don't we talk about, we'll start with the easiest, I think, the the drug. What is she using? What, what, um, uh, how is she using, um, what are some concerns? Alcohol, yep, lots of alcohol. and you know, if we look at look at dose, she's uh, she's drinking quite a bit of liquor every day, but then also she's adding on top of that um, wine and some of the risk there that ensues. Yeah. Okay. And you know, the other elements you include in this drug is that she's also um, she's also on insulin, so and also on Seroquel. So we want to include those drugs in there as well, although those are prescribed. Um, still falls into that drug um, that drug category. Yeah. Okay. Um, so, what do we know about her set? So, for set, uh, just to review, um, this is her mindset, her motivation um, to use, her physiology, and and beliefs. What are some things that you would use to describe about her set? So, yeah one of those motivations is she's experiencing, she's been through a lot, she's experiencing pain and help alcohol helps to dull that pain a bit for her. Yeah, I see a little bit more on pain coming through.
0: Boredom, the singer friends, yeah. Yeah.
4: Boredom, of course. But that is, you know, I, I, I think And I'd be interested to hear what some observations are too. Not to go off topic, but I think right now with with COVID and and, um, uh, people not being able to do the things that they're used to, um, boredom is pretty prevalent. And I think we're seeing an increase in drug use, particularly alcohol. I'm not sure if you all are finding that with um, those that you work with in FSP programs. and you know, any anything else about the overall motivation and her belief system around alcohol, or anything that you you wish you would know? No interest in stopping alcohol. Yep, she has. Um, you can definitely uh, say she's in that pre-contemplation stage of of change where she she has no desire to change.
0: Okay, and we know that she's got. Let's see, some physiology stuff. She's got mobility issues, right? Yeah. Um, she's recovering from her amputation.
4: I think it's a really great point that's in the um, in the vignette about how now she's experiencing soreness in other parts of her body because she's compensating for uh, uh, for the removal of those three toes, and so now the rest of her body is kind of trying to adapt to that in probably ways that's not not healthy. Um, especially if she's not using the cane consistently.
0: Yeah, when I think about that, I think about what it would be like to have some toes amputated, and I also wonder how that impacts her, how she's feeling um, outside of pain, but psychologically, what that's been like for her. And we know she experiences um, mania. Let's see. You'd like to know her family history around alcohol use, too? Yeah, maybe. What I mean, what would that help you with here? Would that help us understand the meaning it holds for her? Because we know she's probably not going to change her drinking. Remember, she does not. Mm-hmm. She doesn't want to.
4: You know, and the the point about um, you know using alcohol for relaxation or taking long walks. I wonder. Uh, You know, this would be information that we don't know, of course, but how does mania play into that? And if mania, combined with those long walks, combined with alcohol, wonder if she is prone to going on longer walks or having even increased uh, uh, risk there during during those stages. Now, why don't we move on to setting? Um, so the, the environment in which she, uh, which she drinks, what supports she has with her, um, any cultural implications that we might know about her, and of course the the social social dynamics, and I think Elizabeth was alluding to one of those more from a sort of self-esteem perspective of having three toes amputated, but wondering how she perceives others' perceptions of her. Yeah. So the friends and family live much farther away now. So a loss of social support. That is such a uh, really important point. Thank you for bringing that up. Definitely part of your setting.
0: Yeah.
4: Okay. So um, feel free to keep typing in more observations about what we know. What are some of the things that that you would need to know. I know one of the one of the suggestions was looking at family history to see if there's uh, uh if there's a family history perhaps of alcoholism, maybe even a family history of Oh, great. So she is drinking to relieve her grief and depression about her amputated toes. Um, a really great point. You know, I, I think it's easy to, to minimize the impact of having toes amputated, but I, I would imagine that there is a, a grief process there.
0: Um, yeah. We have to remember she's been drinking since 13, too, and I think the way we have it, she's just been kind of consistent. Yeah. We don't know about psych hospitalization. Um I, Yeah, we don't have that info. That's a good question. Um, yeah. Does she want to form friendships at the Board and Care? Yeah, so the setting is that she's now living in a Board and Care. She's drinking one type of alcohol there, but then she's got her social walking alcohol too, which is different. Mm-hmm.
4: I really like the, uh, the comments. So now we're starting to move into what are some harm reduction interventions strategies and targets can we implement with with june and um one of the suggestions is is getting one of those walkers where you can store um it, it actually i it, we're thinking of the same thing but uh there's like a little seat and you could lift up the seat and you could put things in there and for her she can use that to store water to uh, make sure she's staying hydrated while she's drinking and on those long walks she could also keep her alcohol there um and take and keep her perhaps insulin yes that is the one okay we're we're thinking of the right thing yeah
0: Ooh, Hugh, good question. What about her life goals and aspirations? Wonderful question to ask her, to have more information on. What what matters to June? Yeah, that, that's really
4: the start of um, instilling some motivation uh, for change, if, if that's a direction she'd be willing to go, but also looking at values and trying to align um, some of her actions and behaviors to values and seeing if there's a consistency or not. Looking at alternatives for feeling joy, I, I I really appreciate that. And what brings her joy aside from um, aside from things that are potentially harmful? I wonder if there are other things that she really enjoys doing, or maybe things that she hasn't done in a while that she could reconnect to. Oh, great idea! So we have the idea of FaceTime and Zoom. Um, so that's an opportunity to make some connection, of course. Very good. Any other harm reduction techniques that we would want to use? Replacing with healthy coping skills. Sure.
0: And How do you do that? How do we, for people that don't want to change their behavior, how do you suggest new coping skills without making it look like it's something that's encouraging them to stop or to, to replace? <laughs> um, what's the technique for that, for those of you that are suggesting that? Um, Because it's, it's a, it's a careful thing. And building up coping skills and building on strengths separate from requesting that someone reduce or stop is in line with harm reduction 100%. Find something they're willing and wanting to change. Okay, so find anything, anything. uh, Maybe she could build up her self-efficacy by making a change in some other area of her life. Okay. Replacing a healthy coping skill one day out of the week, okay she may not she may not be willing to replace the drinking at all, but tell them to lift weights. <laughs> <laughs> and we could <can> see. <laughs> um, what did she do prior to working with FSP is a good question to address her increase in binging. Could she do Could she do a record or space out her drinking? Um, like recording her drinks that might be what you're getting at yeah yeah psycho ed on med compliance what about the insulin could we do anything with that she's got this insulin she knows how to refrigerate it now when she's at home but when she goes out she misses doses and we don't quite know we don't know how much of her confusion is again due to um due to what
4: you know, are, I'm wondering, are, are there things that, you know, before she goes out on her long walks, are there things that she can do to prepare? Um, be a little bit more thoughtful about those walks. I don't know what, if anyone has suggestions of what those might be, but maybe if she prepares just a little bit better and so she has the things that can um, can help reduce some of the harmful impacts.
0: Mm, maybe work with her on a walking schedule that will allow her to get back to the board and care to take insulin she can connect with someone to keep her accountable for a return time yeah something like that planning ahead um walk with you and walk with her and see what she likes and learn about her thank you that's just wonderful what a great way to understand really what her experience is like when do her feet start hurting do they get wet do they sweat does she need to bring foot care stuff extra socks is she drinking water? Does she need a hydration pack with her? Does FSP need to buy her one? Where is she drinking and concealing it? Is she at risk of getting arrested? Um,
4: oh, I, I, I love the uh, help her to make a go bag with some, uh, like a mini cooler for her insulin. Um, I Great idea. I, you know, and to go to the walking with her comments, not really like that's the. Uh, literally following some of the the quotes for harm reduction of meeting the person where they're at and actually staying with them and being with them. And in the case with June, I can only imagine how that would really help to further develop the relationship that you have with her. Um, Yeah, a portable mini fridge, purchasing a cooler backpack, all of those things certainly exist. Um, There are so many, uh, uh, uh tools out there to help support this, you know, and that question about maybe replacing with some healthy coping mechanisms and that, and I think elizabeth's uh question was really important how do you do that without um without it seeming like you're putting your agenda on top of hers and um one of the things that I was thinking of is um not presenting it as if it is a replacement um but exploring things that she does enjoy doing and exploring things that do give her joy or maybe have given her joy previously and she just hasn't done in a while and talk about reintroducing those things without even saying okay let's try to replace this but simply bringing that up and perhaps she may not be able to engage in the thing that brings her joy as much when she's intoxicated and she may come to her own conclusion of like wow i really like to i really like painting um however i'm not that good when i've had so much to drink so maybe maybe i should drink a little bit less so my
0: artwork is a little bit better
4: Mm
0: -hmm. yeah that's great um someone commented explore with her whatever her personal goals are and explore how drinking affects her ability to achieve that goal yeah, it's uh, that's a it's almost more sophisticated than the task at hand here which is just finding kind of like practical harm reduction targets but yes that would be the overall work that you would do with June right like we want to figure out if if maybe that that no interest in changing drinking as much as she is could at some point change like there's no lying we would love for her to live out her um adulthood with uh, you know, not having diabetes take her life away from her um, from drinking so much. We would we would love to see that shift. Um, and and that is the the uh, the conversation, the therapeutic conversation, the MI that's happening alongside this very like, mm. what are the practical strategies? What are the, how do we figure out the all of the things? Maybe it's getting her into preventative care. Maybe it's maybe it's creating she she needs a a wrap plan. Maybe she needs a um, something to help her plan for and anticipate her manic symptoms so she can have things ready to go and know what's coming um, and employ some additional coping when she experiences mania. Yeah. Okay. Want to hop on to the next one? You guys are great. These are fantastic ideas. I'm going to look at my notes. I don't know if I my only other idea was to carabiner her <laughs> her cane to her, um, just find a way for her to keep that um, and stuff around charging phones. But I know that's that's such a that's such a challenge right now for everyone, um, and keeping up with your clients is finding ways for them to keep their phones charged, uh, especially if they're unhoused.
4: Yeah, and and actually before I read the second vignette, one of the things too that I, I uh, one of her strengths, I, I think her desire to go walking and how much she enjoys that. I think that is such a great strength. I mean, at least she's getting physical uh, activity, a lot of physical activity.
0: Yeah, that's such a good point. I don't think I'd even thought of that. When we think about, you know, using the benefits and harms, really being clear on like, well, the seemingly high risk behavior is actually beneficial in a lot of ways. Perhaps it's what's um, keeping her A1C in check. We don't know. Yeah.
4: Yeah. Great. Okay. Now we're going to talk about Joe. He is a 34 year old uh, man who has just returned to staying on Skid Row. He is diagnosed with schizophrenia and has experienced significant trauma throughout his life. He recently fled his transitional housing program that he has been in for six months because he was afraid loan sharks were going to find him there and because he was worried his neighbor uh, might call the cops on him. Joe usually spends his benefit money at the beginning of the month quickly on some new clothes, maybe a good meal, but largely on alcohol, cigarettes, and meth. Uh, He is then rarely able to pay his rent and utilities, even with FSP flex funds assisting him. The FSP team worries they are enabling him by assisting in this way, and uh, just a month ago, stopped supplying the financial assistance. By the third week of the month, he borrows money from loan sharks in the neighborhood to afford more drugs and food. Joe wasn't sure he wants to return to his housing anyways, um, as he didn't like living with neighbors who were always spying on him and complaining about him, making noise and the cigarette smoke all night. His roommate was trying to stop using all drugs and Joe felt guilty for bothering him. Joe wasn't sure how to cope with that feeling on top of his other fears, it led him to uh, it led him to drinking, smoking, and using meth even more. Joe had avoided using drugs outside of the building because he knows the loan shark might be there looking for him. Joe really wants a stable life and is disappointed to have left his housing. Joe has a love interest, Lacey, and while they get high together sometimes, he knows she doesn't want to go as deep as deep uh, as deep in as he is these days. Joe really values looking nice for her and taking her out for a meal at the beginning of each month. She's a good influence on, influence on him, uh, he says. Reminds him to take his meds, eat, clean up, etc. When he sees himself through her eyes, he remembers he's in good physical health and when he's uh, not recovering from benders, he can maintain some stability. He could even get a, a job down the road and dreams of that. Right now, however, she's ignoring him since he left his housing and all feels lost okay so uh same thing as we did with june why don't we start with the drug what 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 drugs is that excuse me what drugs are he using drugs is he using oh my (laughs) lord my speech is is not working well today mine either oh lord what is he using um there we go meth alcohol and cigarettes thank you yeah
0: we don't know anything about dose and we don't know what meds
4: he's taking. Yeah. And I don't believe we know the mechanism in which he is taking his meth. I'm not sure if he, if it's indicated if he smokes it, just as he uses meth. So there might be, um, he may be in, injecting. Okay. And, um, and set, what's his mindset? What's his motivation to use? Um, what's his physiology and, and maybe beliefs around his around his behaviors?
0: He's got past yeah.
4: trauma, yeah. Yeah, I, I appreciate the observation that there is some motivation, some positive motivation to uh, change because of his love interest. Um, not feeling safe, that can certainly be a powerful motivator <clears throat> to use. Especially meth and on the streets, and wanting to be awake and wanting to be able to, to fend for yourself and to be able to
0: survive in that environment. So. He's also that paranoia is um, interesting because we don't know, and it might be easy to say it's a symptom, but maybe it's reality based. Maybe he, he's truly paranoid because he's been threatened by a lone shark and doesn't know what to do. I can, I know I've certainly worked with people where. It was a little bit of both in similar situations. Um, he feels uh, guilty. Uh, he's avoiding using drugs outside the house. Yeah, he's trying to avoid um, getting in trouble um, and doesn't want, to, uh, doesn't want to bother anyone. He feels guilty, yeah. Joe's got some guilt in um, fear. He feels like he's a burden. So guilt, self-esteem, fear. He's disappointed with himself, yeah.
4: yeah to build more on the idea of paranoia with his schizophrenia, may have some paranoia with that. And then, of course, the very real possibility that uh, people are actually out to get him because he owes Mm -hmm. him money. And then, of course, math and and a possible side effect of paranoia. So it's really interesting that those three things all together can really um, reinforce the paranoia he may be experiencing. And so let's talk about the environment. Um, I'm sorry, Elizabeth, did I cut you off? No, same thing. I was just prompting. Okay. <laughs> um, so moving on to the setting, um, what sort of environment, what supports does he have? Um, I don't know if you know anything about his culture, um, but what his, uh, maybe any social dyna- dynamics. His love interest, yes. Uh, Joe is interested in a woman named Lacey. She seems like a positive influence on him. His, his FSP team, yeah, that's a support system for him. It sounds like he has a decent relationship with his team. Yeah, he uh, he had a roommate, and again, the, thanks for pointing out that. Also, there's uh, a sense of loss right now for uh, for Lacy if she's ignoring him um, because she's maybe disappointed or angry or frustrated that he's no longer in his housing. Loss of his identity. Oh, yeah.
0: And he hopes to get a job. Yeah, I guess that could be that um, yeah. set or setting, really. Yeah. So
4: um, now that we have the framework of the drug set setting, what do you think are some of the harm, re- uh, harm reduction interventions and strategies? Remember, you can know-
0: you're welcome to note what else you might need to know too um, and why. You want to motivate him to budget his money so that he can look good for his love and engage in fun activities. All right.
4: Definitely. Yep.
0: That's it. It sounds like he, Lacey is very motivating to him. Yeah. He's, he's just left transitional housing. Um, that he'd been in for six months. So he's, he's just uh Perhaps on the, he's on Skid Row now. That's where he is.
4: You know, and I think the motivation for budgeting, I think that could, that potentially can be really, a, a really effective intervention because he may be interested in budgeting his, his money because he's sick of running out of money to buy drugs near the end of the month. And so, again, we don't wanna, you know, I, you know, be careful to not say, oh, you need to buy your drugs throughout the month, but he's hopefully gonna perceive it that way. And it's, that may be a a place to to kind of help motivate.
0: For sure, because he is running out and what's he doing then? He's borrowing money from a predatory lender uh, who wants to hurt him. Um, So he's probably also got a budget to pay back the loan shark so he can stop running. That's another motivation to get out of debt. <clears throat> mm. Yeah. And yeah, maybe think, being on Skid Row helps him hide. Yeah. Connect with a payee service.
4: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I like the occupational training. Uh, that, I think that could be really helpful because it sounds like he's interested in doing that and he can see himself working. Um, mm. I'm like that might be he's dreaming of that so yeah it's using what he's interested in um, getting housed again in the future that could certainly be a powerful motivation
0: maybe he can return to his housing I don't know if we know and maybe that's something FSD could help with is advocating so much around like skills development comes to mind we've got you know he's Joe's 34 um, And he's relying heavily on uh, Lacey to help him uh, with his ADLs to remind him to take care of himself. So maybe, maybe skills work around ADLs, maybe um, some social skills work, interpersonal skills work for roommates.
4: Um, Definitely. And, and, you know, he's, he's demonstrated that he has this ability to... To clean himself up and to, to be presentable and to impress the to impress a woman that he's really interested in. Um he certainly I, I love that he values looking nice for, for others and, and being able to take someone out for a meal. I imagine that's empowering for him, that he's able to take care of somebody else. And I think somebody had mentioned that he may feel like he's a burden. So that ability to um to help someone else out can really counter that burdensome sensation. Yeah. We'll get into a shelter. It's getting over mm. at night right now. Yeah, some possibilities there.
0: What about the methamphetamine use? Um and what about the see? So he's a cigarette smoker and he's using alcohol as well. Um, we don't know how much. Uh, we don't quite know the frequency of any of those. So, yeah, working around whatever route of administration he's using, um, doing some harm reduction uh, work there. Um, yeah, make sure he has a syringe exchange. Yep, if he's injecting. And we talked earlier about uh, managing come downs, ensuring food, sleep, water. Um, getting him connected to resources for food so he can save more money um comes to mind too around like budgeting and managing um the impact of meth yeah so methadone or suboxone treatment um uh methadone only applies to opioids and um suboxone as well so naltrexone is the one that can apply to um uh alcohol and opiates and then there there's no um mat currently for um methamphetamine yeah
4: yeah it really just highlights how um it must be how frustrating it must be for everyone on the line of works with those who, who use meth because there's just fewer solutions or fewer um resources out there
0: Sylvia, great job. You're mentioning Narcan, and I assume you're mentioning that because there's sentinel and meth at times now, um, which is what you would use that for. If if there he got a bad batch of methamphetamine, he would be able to have that on hand. Um, he still has a conscious. Yeah, he's, he's got a lot of strengths. Joe's no. got a lot, a lot of good going on. And where is he gonna use now that he's on the street? How can he use more safely? How can people use more safely in LA County if they're not in their home? Or if they are in their home, how can they do that in a way where they don't put their housing at risk?
4: Mm -hmm. Great, great suggestions. Uh, Drink plenty of water, go slow. Um, Use with others. if he has a support system on the on the on the streets um yeah i really like elizabeth's question though about where can you use um you know in some ways i feel as if it might be you know if if he were still in his housing and he was going to use is it safer to use outside of his housing so that way it's not as much in jeopardy um or does that present more risks i'm not sure what, what you all think
0: People talk about trying to find sort of public-private spaces, um, you know, like a public bathroom that's in a park, um, things that are more open-air but concealed, um, and if someone is using the stimulant is one thing, but if you're using an opiate, like if you are going to nod off, making sure it's in a place where people can look after you more easily, whereas some others might feel like they'd like to be hidden. Um, it certainly There certainly aren't perfect answers, but this is stuff that's really critical to talk through with clients, using drugs in a sanitized, clean area. Yeah. And what do we think about crisis? Um, is there any potential for crisis planning? Joe kind of, what if Lacey doesn't come back? You know, what kind of his his little lifeline right now? I really feel like Joe would benefit from peer support. Mm
4: you know, and I I wonder if the the loss of his relationship, if she doesn't come back, you know, it does that does have the potential to to motivate him to make a change, or it could also have the potential to send him a little bit further into some of his bad habits. He may want to cope um, using substances. So um, it could go really could go either way there. Mm-hmm. Um, Oh great! Excellent job on this. And why don't we do our last one, and then we'll get into our the last part of the day. Okay. So now we have uh, we have Terry. Terry is a 42 year old woman. Uh, she is diagnosed with a uh, major depressive disorder and post traumatic stress disorder, as well as chronic pain. Carrie was assaulted 15 years ago, which caused significant physical injury requiring opioid (laughs) I have the same challenge you do, Elizabeth, (laughs) Uh, requiring opioid pain medication, and the trauma of which resulted in PTSD and worsening of depressive symptoms that she had struggled with since her teen years. Her doctor stopped prescribing the pain uh, meds after two years of physical rehabilitation it did not wean her appropriately. She experienced both withdrawals and an overwhelming increase in intrusive PTSD symptoms. She went, to, she went doctor to doctor for a year after getting short-term prescriptions of Vicodin here and there, eventually exhausting all of her prescribers in her community. Some doctors told her she was making, uh, making up the continued pain, that it was psychosomatic. After this, Terry looked on the streets for pain meds. The, plot, the supply was so irregular and at times expensive that she eventually tried heroin. She said the only thing keeping her alive that without the relief she choose to end her life. She has had suicide attempts and multiple hospitalizations as a result, culminating in her referral to FSP. Since her last hospitalization, Terry became the owner of a pet cat named Bubbles. Uh, she says that while Bubbles is now her true reason for living. She still can only take so much. Terry and Bubbles currently live with her partner, Greg, who works as a doorman at a uh, rock club, among other odd uh, jobs. Terry hasn't been able to work for years, and Greg pays for their drugs and their rent. There have been instances of domestic violence by Greg against her, but when she has attempted to leave, her withdrawal symptoms and increase in her pain motivate her to return. It was really hard to find a place to float with her cats. Uh, Both she and her partner prefer to inject, and most of the time use clean needles, but in a pinch, they'll share. She started to talk about her use more so of recent with the FSP team after a friend of theirs overdosed and what she heard was a bad batch containing fentanyl. She's been ambivalent about continuing with heroin and even had an intake at a methadone clinic last spring, but left after they suggested she leave her relationship. She says they don't understand how much her cat means to her and how resourceful and capable she is of navigating a tough situation. OK, so um, let's start with drugs. Um, what's what is she using opioids and a bad batch? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, heroin.
0: possibly, yeah, a friend friend used it. So it's it's, it's circulating.
4: Yeah. <clears throat> and. Uh, any psychiatric medications? I know I just read that, and I did not absorb that. Uh,
3: da,
0: da, da. we don't know that she's on meds. Actually, is she? No, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, unknown on me- Oh, unknown on uh, meds for depression. Right. Yes, I see what you're saying. Sorry. Um. Yeah, we don't know if she's taking any psych meds. Um, we also don't know if she's taking any other medications for chronic pain that are non-opiates um, and what she's tried. We don't have any of that history. If she's, yeah, we don't have, we don't know. Maybe, we don't know. We assume she has been trialed on some of the other um, uh, pain management um, meds that are non opiate but we don't know.
4: And. Yeah. Um- what do you think her mindset, her motivation uh, to use
0: is, and her motivations in general? What what's what's her sort of mental state comprised of right now?
4: Mm-hmm.
0: Motivation to not use maybe bubbles. Okay. Yeah. Maybe. She's got pain. So she has pain that she's being told that she doesn't have. Um, and we, we know this is like a common experience, uh, particularly um, amongst those who experience things like chronic pain, fibromyalgia, uh, chronic fatigue. And it's um, highly correlated with trauma. Um, and we see it a lot with women.
4: Pain and fear. Yeah, I'm glad fear was mentioned. That is such a powerful motivator.
0: Yeah, so she's got, her mindset has also included some uh, suicidal ideation at times. Um, We don't know where that's at right now. We know she probably feels ambivalent. She can only take so much, but she cares about her cat. She sees herself as resourceful and capable and can navigate things. Um, she's you know defiant about keeping her relationship
4: yeah what do you think her view of medical
0: providers is perhaps mistrustful yeah disenfranchised maybe
4: I bet you know and I imagine that maybe some of those feelings get transferred over to her FSP team as well perhaps in that you know they may want to be just sort of cognizant of Um, yeah i love that her cat is definitely taking care of her cat can definitely be definitely be therapeutic and um that's a good sort of segue into what what her setting is like certainly bubbles is is a big part of her setting
0: (laughs) someone mentioned that uh her cat would be maybe a motivation to not use but unfortunately in this this instance, even though she is ambivalent, uh, we can't can't suggest that. But what about if the cat could be a motivation to do some planning for safer use? You know, maybe maybe that's a something that could be used in the, the conversation. Yeah,
4: yeah. She feels unheard by her, certainly by her medical providers, um, or or maybe those that. And she went to the methadone clinic, and yeah, how frustrating is that I certainly recognize the intent, but to be told she has to leave her relationship um yeah, that's not a very uh not a very helpful sentiment it's ambivalent, yeah
0: boyfriend is both a support and a risk, yeah, right um he's um Both providing uh, resources and perhaps in a coercive manner. um, And he perhaps offers a lot of other positive things to her while also there's domestic violence present in the relationship. Yeah. Yeah, concerns regarding DV.
4: Yeah. So why don't we look at, um, you know, of course, still be thinking about what are some of the things we don't know that would be really helpful if we did but also what are some of those harm reduction interventions that we might be able to assist with? And when you say housing, um, it sounds, I'm I'm guessing you're uh, referring to housing as a way to possibly no longer be in a domestic violence situation. Methadone, of course, where her and her cat can stay. You know, one of the things I really appreciate with some of the harm reduction Uh, strategies that are coming up in the chat is that you guys are doing exactly what we are hoping you do and that you're recognizing there's a few situations here that are harmful. So, of course, it's really easy to be drawn into her using heroin. But, but also there's a harm reduction situation in the domestic violence and mm-hmm. um, what are some strategies that we can build around that recognizing that she does not want to leave that relationship right now.
0: Yeah, that creates such an interesting and complex conversation that you could have with Terry, um, where she's you know she has ambivalence about both her relationship and the the drug use, but. If She, she kind of has to perhaps sacrifice one to pick the other unless we get really creative with how we're going to uh, support her. Because if she can engage in the methadone program, perhaps then she wouldn't be dependent on Greg for drugs and she would be able to leave. But on the flip side, um, it kind of works in the opposite way, too. If she really doesn't want to leave Greg, then it won't make sense for her to do the methadone program in some ways. So yeah how do you then sort of like what else can be done in the midst of she might not take action on either of those because the risk of losing either um, their relationship or um uh, use perhaps would be too much safety planning maybe a safe place if she leaves yeah yeah safety planning for the cat uh, in both cases of if she's hospitalized again uh if she's suicidal again, if she, um, you know, if something, if there's a really bad DV incident, um, so she doesn't come out of that and then weeks later have lost her cat.
4: Mm-hmm. Do you think there's anything we can do to help with her concern around um, uh, getting heroin that might be one of those bad batches that possibly has fentanyl?
0: I see someone wrote drug testing kits oh oh excellent yeah
4: there we go (laughs) thank you (laughs) you know uh, just to offer a really different perspective and it's going into the past so obviously nothing can be done but i'm curious uh i'm surprised this thought occurred to me but i wonder if like recognizing the cat is a motivation for her but i wonder if if actually her adopting bubbles uh actually sort of uh perpetuated some of the challenges like there's a motivation but now there's this kind of anchor that makes it more difficult to leave the situation again i am a very big (laughs) fan of pets so by no means am i advocating to do anything to bubbles i'm just kind of thinking back and pros and cons you know
0: it's real. Taking on a pet can, uh, I've seen that jeopardize people's housing because the pet would make too much noise. Um, pet them lose pets if they went into the hospital because there wasn't a plan made. I mean, it's definitely not a cut and dried thing. Um, that's why we, I mean, those are, it's such a good example of something that is both causes great benefits and um, there are also some cons to having that responsibility. Yeah. You know, and using students. at one of the centers where she could be monitored if they were available here. Yeah, she feels isolated to me. I I want her to have peer support as well. I would want to get her into some sort of like some get her some DV resources of some form, um, whatever she was open to, just so she could connect and um, with people to talk about that topic in a non judged way.
4: Yeah, and it may even be helpful to talk with her about. Um, in regards to dV resources, some safety planning around that because we don't know how um you know if, if if Terry is somebody that or i'm sorry if if Greg goes through her phone, then we want to be careful about what resources she puts in her phone um if he goes through her purse and she has a pamphlet for a domestic violence um shelter. like those are all things we have to be really careful about and it may be helpful to even set up sort of a, a code word for her or a code statement, so if she's in harm, she can call you and say, oh, hey, I just wanted to let you know that Bubbles is doing great today. Oh, thanks. That's the that's the sentence that says, I need help right now. Um, thinking creatively about ways, to that she can alert um, that, that assistance
0: is needed. Yeah, great point. All right, I see a comment on, is there a resource where she can can connect with harm reducers (laughs) uh, to, uh, love that, uh, find some connection? Yeah, so maybe she would be a good fit for connecting with the syringe exchanges or harm reduction groups um, like um, CHP or Homeless Healthcare. She's not homeless right now, but some of the other groups that practice harm reduction, they might have groups. They'll definitely have harm reduction-oriented counseling. All right. I think we need to switch to the remainder of the day. Um, Sadly, great ideas, everyone. Um, you you did the thing where you uh, didn't didn't uh, send her to treatment and didn't tell her to stop, which is the hardest part because it certainly all all of these uh, situations would be made more simple uh, if only. But hey. all right. Um any other comments in there real quick? Yeah,
4: I, someone had mentioned that there's a an app for domestic violence or for the uh domestic violence survivors where the information is hidden in the cloud and not on the device so partners can mm. find it if they look. That's a really great suggestion. Um
0: yes incognito browsing also. Okay. Oh, Robert, you're saying one of your clients just adopted a kitten and a social worker's concerned for the safety of the kitten, yeah. And at this point, it seems more like a protective factor. I can't tell you how many clients' pets I've had feeding schedules with who could not take care of the pet they adopted that then they had deemed an emotional support animal. <laughs> um, it's this. this is the work of this field where you, you take on challenges and roles you that were not part of the job description, for sure.
4: <laughs> yeah. Oh, my gosh. Isn't that the truth? Okay. Um, so we're going to talk about some other, uh, other applications of harm reduction, other contexts in which it can be provided. And some of these might be familiar, some of these might be really new. Um, The first one we'll talk about is harm reduction in the context of safer sex and HIV and AIDS prevention. So this certainly looks different today than it did 20 years ago when I was doing this work as a uh, prevention educator uh, in in Cleveland. And so now there's the the first ones, I, I think these ones are relatively familiar. So there's uh for for having sex there are of course barriers so these include uh, external or internal condoms internal condoms if some if no one's familiar with that or if that's a new concept for you they could also be called female condoms um but they it's better used as internal condoms simply because females aren't the only ones who use them they can be used uh, uh, for anal sex um so if uh, by both a woman or a male um, involved with anal sex, and one of the benefits about internal condoms is that they do give a degree of of control and power for the uh, uh, for the receiving partner. Um, so that's one of those benefits. Now, if People do use internal condoms, um, external co- or external condoms. <laughs> uh, but yeah, that's the the phrase. But your traditional condom shouldn't be used in a, with. An internal condom. That's there's a little bit too much there, and it could also it can cause some friction and actually cause some tearing. So one of the other, don't do both. Similar to like the old myth of oh, wear two condoms. <laughs> like no, just wear one. Um, no need to double up. That causes more more harm than good. Um, a dental dam is another solution for a barrier. I'm not sure if anyone has heard of a dental dam. Um, it's basically a, uh, a small sheet, maybe around this big uh, a latex or um, I want to say a polyurethane. And you can use that as a barrier for, um, for oral sex uh, performed on a woman or oral sex on the anus. So uh, analingus or cunnilingus is the more uh technical terms um not very romantic terms but um the barrier can be used and you could actually make a dental dam out of a condom Um, obviously dental dams you don't see them very often they don't i mean you 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 can uh, get a condom much easier than you can get a dental dam so if if somebody if the people you work with have condoms they can simply cut the tip off and then um, cut it down the side and that'll create a sheet um, that can be used, and that's applied to the area that one is going to perform oral sex on. Um, of course, always using lubrication to prevent tears and, uh, and, and tears in the skin as well. And so the, the really exciting stuff is PrEP. And um, hopefully many of you have heard of this, but this is a pre-exposure prophylaxis. And so this can be taken daily and it dramatically reduces the risk of HIV infection. Um, and it has about a 99% effective, uh, uh, effectiveness at reducing risk. So this is really a huge, huge change, um, in HIV prevention. And, um, gosh, I, you know, the, the uh, with individuals that I work with, I have a fair number of people who identify as gay men and they absolutely, uh, it's, I, almost like fifty to seventy five percent of those that i work with uh take prep so it's certainly uh getting to quite widespread and that's that's awesome yeah and i there's a comment in the chat about um uh about seeing commercials i see those commercials all the time as well and it's actually it's yeah it's really great they're uh diverse and informative and inviting i totally agree with you they are like a, I normally don't like pharmaceutical commercials I you know I have my own opinions and biases but yeah I feel like they have done a pretty decent job with those and then there's post exposure prophylaxis and so this is not only is this for uh, possible exposure if perhaps somebody had unprotected sex and they're concerned about getting HIV from that uh, from that possible exposure, but this is also used in um, medical facilities for doctors and nurses um, in case there's an accidental needle stick. So this is the same thing. They keep, they are administered this. It uh, needs to be taken within 72 hours, of course, before any sort of uh, infection would uh, would develop and then the individual will take that for 28 days. So it's basically antiretroviral drug therapy. Um, and it, you'll, you know, if this is an option for somebody, they will have to go to a doctor and you'll have to do it as soon as you can because you don't want that 72 hour window to expire. Um, so going to an emergency room is certainly an appropriate uh, thing to do that if you don't have a regular uh, practitioner. Okay, housing first. So This is uh, definitely a, a wonderful harm reduction intervention. So housing first, it's a homeless assistance approach that prioritizes providing permanent housing to people experiencing homelessness. Um, that Thus, they are no longer homeless, and then they have the ability to, to address all of those other challenges uh, that they're experiencing in their life. So if we look at Uh, Maslow's hierarchy of need. I mean, this really is consistent with that. Give somebody the place to live where they can feel safe. And then we can work on other goals that they may have identified, whether those goals are about Um, uh, recovery, or whether it's about reducing substance use, or maybe it's just about maintaining a healthier lifestyle. It's really hard to do any of those goals if you're living on the streets and if you're not feeling safe in your environment. So housing first, here are five principles, immediate access to housing with no readiness conditions. In other words, you don't have to go through a complex process or a curriculum. You don't have to uh, be uh, 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 be abstinent from substance substances prior to admission to housing. It's immediate access. Um, choice is a really important principle. Um, so of course, this is what we've been talking about. Uh, actually for a while, if you look at our recovery-oriented care trainings, as well as harm reduction trainings, um, you know, consumer choice is incredibly important. Self-determination. Uh, and then recover. So this is a very uh, recovery-oriented intervention and program. Support is provided in the housing. So once somebody is housed, they can get the support to help achieve some of the goals that they've set. So the support is individualized and it needs to be person-centered and person-driven. And finally, a community is very important. So being housed in a facility automatically sort of provides that community so hopefully a Housing First program is going to have services built in and they're going to have programming built in that's that provides that community and socialization.
0: I would add just for Housing First but I'm pretty sure people know about Housing First. Um, one of its uh, ideals is that there's also larger community integration so the buildings that are if it's congregate are built in a way that's Pleasant and blends in with the community around it. And many of them have blended like, you know, units of community members and people who are supportive tenants um, uh, receiving mental health services along with their housing. I think original housing first is supposed to be scatter site built, you know, truly embedded in just other apartment buildings, which we of course know comes with its own set of challenges. Yeah,
4: that's a great point and it reminds me of the importance of having digital supports or supports in the community that you don't typically view as supports, but when um, Housing First facilities are located um, in a community with other things around, like having a corner store where the participants, they, they know the owners or the people who work there, like those are viewed as support systems. Having a coffee shop that people go to, where they know the barista or the person who serves the coffee. like Those are important supports to have as well. Um, now some, some values for housing first. Housing is a right to which we are all entitled. Um, homelessness is first and foremost a housing problem and should be treated as such. People who are homeless or on the verge of homelessness should be stabilized in the permanent housing as quickly as possible and connected to resources to help them sustain that housing and issues that may have contributed to a household's homelessness uh, can best be addressed once they are housed. It really makes just a lot of common sense. I can't imagine working towards any goals if I wasn't in a place that I felt safe and I was able to keep my belongings, I was able to put my head down at night. Um, So yeah, great example of of, of a, of a, a harm reduction program. So I'm gonna go to the chat really quick. And see what we have here. Yeah, we've seen the talked about PrEP, and uh, yeah, there's a, a comment about harm reduction is really part of the, all of our lives. And uh, it is such a great point. And thanks, Elizabeth, for um, providing that uh, those additional examples seatbelts, hand washing, all those things count. Um, really, we can view any sort of pro health uh, activity as a harm reduction. So, and then we have a comment here. A, when a, when a client starts having positive feelings towards herself, she will want to practice harm reduction, it seems. Motivation for wanting to do so seems to be the issue that comes up for me. Yeah, great points. And I, I think looking uh, at self-esteem and when people start to have a more positive image of themselves, hopefully that's going to be a motivation to reduce risk, reduce harm, um, and motivate them to want to live a happy life and recognizing areas in which – Um, their behaviors may not be contributing to that. So, excellent. Listen, what is it like to work with non-housing first programs? So I think one of the uh, most important things is for us as the providers to practice some of that radical uh, acceptance and recognizing that programs don't always have the components that we wish they did. So we want to be cognizant of our own reactions. And so like some of those non-housing-first programs, they may require sobriety or they may impose more restrictions than housing-first housing. So we want to be cognizant of that. And we want to explore ways in which an individual can can have autonomy even when they're in a more restrictive setting. So this is the same thing that we've been talking about when it comes to domestic violence and conservatorship, 5150s rights are taken away, rules are imposed, it makes it a little bit more difficult to um, to have that right to self-determination. So we need to work with those that we serve a little bit more creatively to highlight those things that we do have control over, things that we can, can that we are able to change, um, and then practice some of that radical acceptance for things that we are unable to change. And yeah, this is such a great point. It's such, a, it's It's critical to get creative to increase opportunities for client choice and preference both explicit and explicitly affirm this and um, you know I think we encountered this in one of the examples and I had posed the question of what happens when you're in a restricted setting you're not willing to stop smoking meth but you don't want to get kicked out of your housing how can we be creative to find places that are relatively safe um, don't get kicked out of housing where somebody can still use um, and, uh, and avoid some of those consequences that would make things even more challenging for themselves.
0: Okay. It's crazy to imagine that soon in Oregon that risk won't exist in the same way. People could probably use in more settings and not risk have the risk of criminalization. And
4: so medication use. So Elizabeth, um, she had... Uh, uh referenced the uh, Icarus project uh earlier and so this um, actually had pulled it up before my computer had to crash on me. <laughs> but um Icarus Project, it's uh based in New York and it's it's a program for individuals um who are we feel very stigmatized and who maybe reject the diagnosis. Um it's it's about you know viewing Mental health issues a little bit differently. Um, th- this group, it's a, a you could view it as a, a peer-run group, and they don't necessarily identify with some of the diagnoses that they have received. Perhaps that they, they don't view ne- schizophrenia necessarily as a debilitating disease, but thinking about it from a very different perspective—that it's a unique aspect of one's personality—and um, I know I'm i paraphrasing probably pretty poorly, and I, I don't want to put words in, in the mouth of this project, but again, for time's sake, I'm kind of trying to summarize there, but they have their website, really great resource, and they have this book. It's available free download. You could also get the audio, um, an audio book um, from their website as well, um, but here on the screen you'll see it's a 52 page manual on how to come off of psychiatric medications and how to do it as safely as possible how to avoid some of the um side effects that that go with it and it's there's a a lot of really great information in there and it's a it's a way for an individual to take ownership of their decision and um and again just have access to a lot of really really important information Elizabeth, did you work with them at all when you were in New York City?
0: No, didn't work with them. Um, I guess I had colleagues who did, but no, just uh, use their resources. Yeah, just use them for guidance when I had people coming off of psych meds or taking them intermittently, um, especially those who also use substances otherwise.
4: Yeah, no, I I think it's such a great resource, and there's a lot of – um, you had mentioned Reddit, and I, I appreciate that, like, there's a lot of sources like that also, people going through that process of coming off of medications and wanting that peer support. Sorry about the sirens behind me. Um, and uh, so I want to briefly describe the Icarus Project in their words, because I, I did a bad job of that. So. We are a support network advocacy organization and media project by and for people who experience the world in ways that are often diagnosed as mental illness. So, yeah, much better way of uh, describing that. And I'm going to put their website into. Oh,
0: Krista beat you to it. Oh, oh. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Oh, I'm sorry, she put the PDF of the guide in there. Thank you, Krista. Oh. Um, <laughs> and David's got the Gri Project website up there now yeah.
4: Great. Thank you. Um, anything you want to add on No. Mm-mm.
0: Yes yeah, just uh, remembering the client choice is there. Some some psych meds will be more impactful and potent than anything they could use on the street. Um, so just kind of remembering that they're all all substances have risks and benefits. Um, and it's
4: really
0: about
4: the individual's experience. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So I'm going to go through this one pretty quickly um, just to get, there's a few others after this that I, I think are um, super important. But chronic condition management, we can certainly take a harm reduction approach to this. And I think there was some chat about this. But I think we can really apply this to our lives. as. Um, uh, I'm sure many many people on the line may have some of these chronic conditions, and some of the uh, some of the treatment options do apply a harm reduction strategy, so including diet, exercise, smoking, sleep, uh, going to our doctors on a regular basis, and of course wanting to target any barriers to to care, but. Um, These are things we all do every day even if we don't have a chronic health care condition or any chronic condition. Um, But we want to use some of the same approaches that we've been seeing with substance use and other harmful behaviors, but motivational interviewing, emphasis on self-determination and choice and empowerment. So, okay, great.
0: (laughs) Yeah, this is <laughs> quick and dirty. Sorry, we want to make sure you have time to finish your evals before 430. Um, but it's, uh, yeah, these, are, these could be whole trainings, each of these last other topics. So if you like any of these other topics, write that in your eval and we could do a harm reduction training on chronic condition management or next self-injury. Yeah.
4: Yeah. And someone had put in the chat box about self-injury. So this one, I definitely want to talk about it. Um, so, so first, what is self-injury? So it can be a, a coping mechanism. It's often associated with increased suicide risk. So behavior is not intended to be lethal. So we really want to look at this as a, as a coping mechanism. Um, but of course we, we also want to make sure we're, um, Vigilance to, to make sure we're, we're assessing for, for any sort of uh, suicidal ideation. But remember, they they are distinct and different. Um, let me pull up my notes here. Side yeah. down. Have too many things open on my computer. Okay. <laughs> um, so some strategies for harm reduction in regards to self-injury. So first, you want to explore what the Uh, What is the function? There are a lot of different functions for uh, for self-injury. For some people, it's a way to feel things in a way that they haven't been able to to feel. Um, others, it may be a result of uh, low self-esteem feeling that they have this need to punish themselves. There can be so many different uh, reasonings for for self-injury. So we want to understand what the motivation behind it is and then Let's consider some non- permanently damaging ways of achieving that same sensation. So these are some really great examples that Elizabeth has on this slide. So putting ice cubes where where you would normally inflict pain or or, or damage that produces a pretty uncomfortable sensation or having rubber bands that you are able to snap that certainly causes um, causes pain. Um, Another one that uh, I I don't think it's on here, but uh, Elizabeth did put it in some notes but using a red marker to uh draw on yourself of where you would normally want to cut yourself so it doesn't feel the same of course but it may have a a similar visual component to it Um, and if somebody insists upon cutting I want to make sure that they are doing so to minimize any sort of infection that can result. I want to make sure that they're able to sterilize whatever they're using and that they're able to dress the wounds after after they're complete. And we also want to help them to find resources of um, uh, around psychoed for how to avoid veins and arteries. So how to do it without that risk of of really serious bleeding i know this one might be a little bit tough to wrap our heads around in harm reduction perspective but again this is another behavior that some people are not willing to change and we could just simply ignore it but that's certainly not going to be helpful in any sort of way Um, we could consistently tell people uh self-harm isn't good don't do it we know that doesn't always work so We want to be able to support somebody. This is about meeting them where they are at and staying with them, even if they are doing some activities that are really hard for us to imagine as providers. I know there's a lot of stigma around this, so I appreciate everybody's attempts at radical acceptance and uh you know there's a lot of different things that you can do depending on what feeling you're experiencing so if you use self-harm or if your client uses self-harm uh because of intense emotions maybe they could use creative outlets uh journaling um writing i always recommend that i think it's so helpful to sort of externalize some of those emotions even if you just need to dance or scream or run whatever it is those can all be helpful alternatives as opposed to um as opposed to cutting and again if they if if it is important to feel pain um we've talked about some of those ways i actually had worked with a young woman who her method of of self-harm was uh she would actually roll off the bed and fall into the floor which would simply result in some bruising Um, it would hurt but nothing too serious, and wasn't something she was willing to stop doing. And um, and she was practicing a harm reduction approach there because it didn't have any sort of, you no know, significant markings.
0: Uh, I love that as a substitute behavior. Um, yeah, so the most common are cutting, burning, and banging, like, like it's a wall or head banging. And a lot of these techniques that are um, replacement, some of them have really, they're not, they don't seem to be adopted well. Um, <laughs> uh, and what, we, what the other thing we know about uh, self-injury, what David just mentioned, Sigma is huge here. So when we think about like, we can't advise people to stop using substances or to take their meds. We can't, advising them that self-injury is gonna harm them is like telling them, you know, things they already know and can just, just come off as judgment. So it's, a, it's an area that I'm not well-versed in um, speaking about from a harm reduction perspective, but it's definitely one to sort of take it step by step and try and watch out for those potholes. Um, and know that it's something, you know, physical pain releases endorphins. And so it, is a, it could be a little bit of a, a chemical <laughs> process, a bit of an addiction going on there, um, which is why it can be so resistant to change.
4: Definitely. And so, going on to the the next slide, this one might also bring up a lot of emotions or feelings for you. And this is not an easy topic, and certainly not one that we can do in two minutes. So, I recognize it's just a resource.
0: <laughs> yeah,
4: I I was looking through it's, it's an incredible resource. Um, but harm reduction in pregnancy and sub for pregnancy and substance use really, really great information in this toolkit and um, yeah, I'd encourage you to to check it out. Um, I certainly learned some things about this. And yeah, I guess it's a difficult topic and I would encourage you to just take a look at this resource here. And then going on to sex work, I really do want to spend more time on this. And I I just know we we don't have the ability, but what I, I at least want to, clarify one thing like what what is sex work and differentiate it uh from sex trafficking so sex work can include a variety of things it can be um it could be uh what we normally know as as uh selling sex for for money or for food or drugs or shelter um it could be uh it could be new dancing it could be porn it could be um, over the over the internet, uh, filming movies, BDSM, um, or uh, lots of a, a lot of variety of things. Um, sex work could be the um, uh, Uh, Purchasing the services of a dominatrix for those who are interested in um, sadomasochism and um, uh, and dominance. Um, All of that falls under the umbrella of sex work. And you may be wondering, like, why do people choose to engage in sex work? Well, A, it's a choice. An example, let's say Julia chooses sex work as a dominatrix because the work is profitable and she enjoys it. Um, So she's choosing to engage in that or it could be under circumstance. So here's an example. Mark is marginally housed and engages in a relationship with Peter to have a place to sleep. Mark's sex work is circumstantial. And then, of course, it could be coercion. And this is where we're starting to look at sex trafficking. Again, different than sex work. Uh, Leah's partner coerces her into trading sex with their supplier in exchange for drugs, even though she doesn't want to. That is a human rights violation and is not the same as consensual sex work. I know there's a lot of discussion about consent in regards to sex work, and where does it cross the line to coercion? Is it true consent if the only, like, the only way you're feeding yourself is through um, selling, uh, selling sex services? No clear black and white answer there, but I think what is important is that um, there are choices involved, and we don't want to uh, we don't want to place our agenda, our views of someone's choices in sex work. We' want to place those on another individual. We want to be empowering, and we want to focus more so on safety. That's what we really want to look at here. Um, and yeah, I know I didn't do it justice. I am so sorry about that. It's such an important topic.) Um,
0: it's a training in and of itself also. All of these are. Consider it a menu of things you can request for the future, and please do put that in your about answers. Um, it's a, there's a resource on here that could be helpful. Swope uh, is a national um, organization that has some uh, city and state-based chapters, It's a sex workers outreach project, um, and things that matter. Uh, there's resources all over online for um, just Healthcare resources, uh, mutual support, which is really critical because this is going to be an isolated profession. Um, uh, advocacy for legalization, uh, so sex workers can have benefits and things like health insurance, um, they can organize, they can unionize. Um, and then yeah, bad date sheet, so prevention of violence uh, is huge um, and working on numbers, things like that. We've got some more resources uh, that were really specific to COVID-19, so you can check these out online. A lot of sex work for those who have been able to translate it online, they've they've done that. Um, And other things that can be done, uh, you know, getting creative about literally human positioning to reduce COVID, potential for COVID transition is included in these. All right, summary slide in our last 30 seconds, and then we're going to put the eval link up.
4: Okay, so I just some uh, deliver on the plan how expect ups and downs in practicing harm reduction. Um, remember, there may be relapse, there's going to be hope and despair, offer acceptance. And I know there's a lot of chat around radical acceptance. And yes, it is such an important thing. I, I know it's something that I really I still have to I have to practice and having compassion for everybody that unconditional positive regard that that old Carl Rogers reinforced in his uh, treatment model. Uh, I can't say how important that is enough. Uh, be, uh, uh, follow through and be consistent. Remember the relationship that uh, the relationship you develop with those you work with is of the utmost importance. Hold hope for them, specifically if that individual you're working with is unable to have hope in their situation, we could hold on to that hope for them until they're ready um have a self-reflective practice and support that allows you to process the feelings that you experience as a provider because you know that there's a lot of challenges just talking about some of these things that we've been discussing over the past few days i'm sure brought up a lot of emotions for you so remember having that self-compassion having support being self-reflective is incredibly important And then finally, yep, people are always moving and changing. Keep up, walk beside them no matter what path they take, and uh, walk beside them even if they have their single line and uh, (laughs) want to be there to provide support.
0: Someone made the comment earlier, and I think they may have signed off already, but they said to um, ask the bondage people for help with safety. Which almost made me burst out laughing, but that's actually quite true Um, (laughs) around things around self-injury and self-harm. We'll we'll keep that in mind in the future. There's a lot of good protocols from that realm around uh, safe, just safety and uh, potential for bodily harm. Yeah, yeah.
4: Yeah, Doing my prevention work, um, we had uh, worked with a few uh, individuals in that field, and absolutely, I mean, it, it is a uh at least the uh domin uh, oh gosh, I can't say the plural <laughs> the, the, the women that we had worked with, like they were true professionals uh of of being a dominatrix and uh take it very seriously.
0: There's a sort of uh very R rated movie called The Secretary that's great as a um sort of a, I wouldn't call it, it's not like a a provider is offering an intervention around self-harm, but this person who ends up having a a sort of BDSM relationship with someone who engages in self-harm coaches her through doing it in a somewhat more safe manner. There's all sorts of psychological stuff perhaps off with the relationship, um, but it's a good example, and I think it's kind of good for destigmatizing self-harm because it shows it, um, and I think that that could be for some people uh, probably quite validating. Yeah, I've only seen it once and it's been a minute. And as I'm saying, and I'm like that it might even be beyond R-rated. I can't quite recall, but we're all adults here, so hopefully that's fine. Um, but yeah, it's a it's a destigmatizing movie on multiple fronts. Thank you so much for your attention, contribution, um, and. Yeah, interest in harm reduction for wanting to do 10 hours of training on the topic. Um, it's wonderful.